Drakenfels Act 2 1. It took a full week to negotiate the contract. During that time, Crown Prince Oswald arranged, much to Governor Van Zandt's cold fury, that Detlef have his collar struck and be transferred to more comfortable quarters within the keep. Unfortunately for the administration of the prison, the only quarters that even approximated Detlef's idea of comfort were the governor's own official chambers in the central tower. Van Zandt was booted out to seek refuge in a nearby hostelry, and Detlef took over his offices for his own business. Although still technically a convicted debtor, he took the opportunity to rearrange his circumstances. Instead of a single dirty blanket, he had an imperial-sized bed brought to the governor's rooms. Instead of Zaradat's rough treatment, he was attended by a poor unfortunate girl in whose case he took an interest, and whose gratitude was memorable and invigorating. And, instead of the cheese, bread and water, he was served a selection of the finest meats, wines and puddings. Even for a week, however, he could not tolerate the drab and tasteless furnishings Van Zandt evidently chose to live with. It was hardly the governor's fault that his parents had been a pair of pop-eyed uglies, with little judgment when it came to commissioning portraits from cross-eyed mountebanks. But it seemed odd that he should compound the family's shame by hanging over his desk an especially revolting daub of the Van Zandt senior bathed in the golden light of some idiot's palate. After a morning in the room with the thing, imagining the governor's fish-faced mother frowning upon him with disapproval, Detlef personally threw the painting off the balcony, and had it replaced with a magnificent oil of himself, in the role of Gillian the Conqueror, in Taradash's Barb Noir, the Bastard of Bretonia. He had a generous impulse to leave it behind when he left, to cheer up the cold-hearted official's surroundings with a daily reminder of the keep's most notable past tenant. But then he thought better of it. The oil, executed by the Konigsgarden Theatre's art director, was too valuable an item to leave for such a poor fellow to gaze dully upon while shuffling parchments and sanctioning the mindless brutality of his staff. Normally, he would have entrusted the business of the contract to his valued associate, Thomas the Bargainer, but Thomas had been the first to turn on him, and stood at the head of the list of creditors, with his hand out for repayment. Therefore Detlef took care of the tedious business himself. After all, Thomas had bargained him into his contract with the Elector of Middenland. This time, he was certain... There would be no hidden clauses to catch him later. The agreement was that Oswald pledged to underwrite the production of Detlef's Drakenfels to the depths of his treasury, provided the dramatist himself lived modestly. Detlef hadn't been sure about that particular condition, but then reasonably assumed that the Crown Prince's idea of a modest living would probably shame a Sybarite's decadent dream of total luxury. As Detlef put it, 
between sips of Van Zandt's Estallian sherry. All a man like me requires is food and drink, a warm bed with a stout roof over it, and the means to represent my genius to the public. Detlef also decided to share his good fortune with his erstwhile cellmates, and insisted that Oswald settle their debts too. In each case, the release could only be obtained if Detlef promised to vouch for their good character and provide them with employment. That was no problem. Kaczynski and Manolo were brawny enough to shift heavy scenery. Justice's previous occupation suggested he would make a fine character actor. Kerith could cobble for the whole company, and Guglielmo would, his bankruptcy notwithstanding, make an admirable substitute for Thomas the Betrayer as business manager. Detlef even arranged, anonymously, for Zaradat's release, confident that the turnkey's base qualities would swiftly return him to prison. It would take years of suffering for him to regain, if he ever did, his unmerited position of privilege within the order of misery that was Munson Keep. Meanwhile, Crown Prince Oswald had a ballroom in his palace reopened as a rehearsal hall. His mother had been fond of lavish parties, but since her death, the position of the Empire's premier hostess had fallen to the Countess Emanuel von Liebowitz of Nulm. The old Grand Prince, struck down by ill health and grief, pottered about with toy soldiers, refighting all his great battles in his private rooms. But the business of the von Konigswalds was done exclusively now by his son. Oswald's men were sent out to seek those remaining members of the Konigsgarten company Detlef thought hadn't turned traitor. More than a few actors, stagehands and creative personnel who had sworn never again to be involved in a Detlef Cirque production were wooed back to the prodigy of Konigsgarten by the von Konigswald name and the sudden settling of outstanding wages they had long ago written off as another loss in the notoriously hard life of the stage. Word of Detlef's return spread throughout Altdorf, and was talked about in Nulm and Middenheim. The Elector of Middenland took advantage of the sudden interest to have the History of Sigmar published, along with a self-composed memoir, blaming the dramatist for the disaster of the production that had never taken place. The book sold well, and, thanks to his ownership of the manuscript, the elector was able to avoid paying a penny to Detlef. One of Grunelieber's balladeers composed a ditty about the foolishness of entrusting another major theatrical event to the architect of the Sigmar debacle. When the song came to the attention of Crown Prince Oswald, the balladeer found his license to jest summarily revoked, his merry face no longer welcome in even the lowest dives and a passage paid for him on a trading expedition to Araby and the Southlands. Eventually, the contract was drawn up, and Detlef and the Crown Prince put their seals to it. The greatest dramatist of his generation strolled through the open gates of the debtor's prison, dressed again in his flamboyant finery. His grateful comrades are respectful twenty paces behind. It was the first good day of spring, 
and the streams of melting snow cleaned the streets around the depressing edifice of the keep. He looked back and saw Van Zandt fuming on one of his balconies. Two trustees were carrying a bent and muddy painting up the outside staircase of the tower. Van Zandt shook his fist in the air. Detlef swept the ground with his long feathered cap and bowed low to the governor. Then, straightening, he gave a cheery wave to all the miserable souls peering out through the bars, and turned his back forever on Munson Keep. Two. No! screamed Lily Nissen in her dressing room at the Premier Theatre in Marienburg, as the fourth of the four priceless jewel-inset cut-glass goblets given to her by the Grand Duke of Talabekland shattered into a million pieces against the wall. No! 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 The emissary from Altdorf quaked as the famed beauty's cheeks burned red, and her haughty nostrils flared in unnatural fury. Her large, dark eyes shone like a cat's. The minute lines about her mouth and eyes, totally unnoticeable when her face was in repose, formed deep and dangerous crevices in her carefully applied paint. It was entirely possible, Oswald's man supposed, that her face would fall off completely. He wasn't sure he wanted to see what lay beneath the surface that had so enchanted sculptors, painters, poets, statesmen, and, it was rumoured, six out of fourteen electors. No! 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 She looked at the seal on the letter again, the tragic and comic faces Detlef Sirk had taken for his emblem, and tore it off with lacquered fingernails like the claws of a carrion bird. She had gone into her rant, without even scanning the substance of the message, simply at the mention of the name of the man from whom it came. Lily's trembling dresser cringed in the corner, the bruises on her face eloquent testimony to the great beauty's hidden ugliness. The dresser had a lopsided face, and one of her legs was shorter than the other, forcing her to hobble on a thick-soled boot. Given the choice, Oswald's man would have, at that moment, chosen the dresser to warm his bed at the Hotel Marienburg this night, and left the actress, who could inspire love in millions, to her own devices. No! 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 The screaming was less shrill now, as Lily digested the meat of Cirque's proposal. Oswald's man knew she would relent. Another starring role more or less meant nothing to the woman, but the name of Oswald von Konigswald must stand out on the page as if written in fire. He would be Elector of Ostland soon, and Lily had a collection to complete. No. No. The actress fell silent, her blood-red lips moving as she reread the letter from Detlef Cirque. The dresser sighed and came out of her corner. Without a complaint, she got painfully down on her knees and started picking up the pieces of the goblets, separating the worthless glass shards from the redeemable jewels. Lily looked up at Oswald's messenger and flashed a smile he would remember every time he saw a pretty woman for the rest of his life. She put her fingers to her temples 
and smoothed away the cracks. Again, she was perfect, the loveliest woman who ever lived. Her tongue flicked over one sharp eye-tooth. The dramatist had cast her well as a vampire, and her hand went to the jewelled choker at her throat. Her fingers played with the rubies and then went lower, parting her negligee, revealing a creamy expanse of unrouged skin. Yes, she said, fixing Oswald's man with her glance. Yes, he forgot the dresser. Three. Have I ever told you about the time when the Crown Prince Oswald and I bested the great enchanter? roared the fat old man. Yes, Rudy, said Bowman, without enthusiasm. But this time I'll have to pay for your gin with coin, not the same old story. Surely there's someone, Rudy Wegener began, sweeping a meaty arm about. The solitary drinkers of the Black Bat Tavern took no notice of him. His chins shook under his patchy grey beard, and he lurched from his stool at the bar, enormous belly seeming to move independently of the rest of his body. Bowman had reinforced the stool with metal braces, but he knew that Rudy would still crush it to splinters one day. It's a fine tale, my friends, full of heroic deeds, beautiful ladies, great perils, terrible injuries, treachery and deceit. Rivers of blood and lakes of poison, good men gone bad and bad men gone worse, and it ends nobly with the prince destroying the monster and good old Rudy to guard his back. The drinkers looked down into their tankards. The wine was vinegary and the beer watered down with rat's pee, but it was cheap. Not cheap enough for Rudy, though. Tuppence a pint might as well be a thousand gold crowns, if you don't have tuppence. Come on, friends. Won't anybody hear the story of good old Rudy? Of the prince and the great enchanter? Bowman emptied the remains of a bottle into a pot and pushed it across the polished and scarred wood towards the old man. I'll buy you a drink, Rudy. Rudy turned, alcoholic tears coursing down the fatty pockets of his cheeks and put a huge hand around the pot, but only on the condition that you don't tell us about your great adventures as a bandit king. The old man's face fell apart, and he slumped on the stool. He moaned. He had hurt his back long ago, Bowman knew, and peered into the pot. He looked down at himself in the wine, and shuddered at some unspoken thought. The moment was a long one, an uncomfortable one, but it passed. He raised the pot to his mouth and drained it in a draught. Gin flowed into his beard and down onto his much-stained, much-patched shirt. Rudy had been telling his lies in the black bat ever since Bowman had been old enough to help out his father behind the bar. As a boy... He had swallowed every story the fat old fraud dished out, and he had loved more than anything else to hear about Prince Oswald and the Lady Genevieve 
and the monster Drakenfels. He had believed every word of the tale. But, as he grew up, he came to know more about life, and he discovered more about his father's clientele. He understood that Mihail, who would boast for hours of the many women he pursued and won, went home each night to his aged mother, and slept alone in a cold and blameless bed. He learned that Corin the halfling, who claimed to be the rightful head of the moot, dispossessed by a jealous cousin, was, in fact, a pickpocket, expelled from his home when his fingers got too arthritic to lift a purse unnoticed. And Rudy, so far as he knew, had never adventured beyond Altdorf's street of a hundred taverns. Even in his long-gone youth, the old suck couldn't have found a horse willing to go under him, hefted a weapon any more dangerous than a beer bottle, and then only to his lips, or stood up straight to any foeman who came his way. But Rudy, the bandit king, had been Bauman's childhood idea of a hero, and so now he generally had a drink or two to spare for the old fool, whenever he hadn't the price in his pouch. He probably wasn't doing the old man that much of a kindness, since Bauman was certain Rudy was floating himself to a coffin on his wines and ales and the burning Estallian gin only he of all the Black Bat's patrons could stand. It wasn't much of a night. Of the talkative regulars, only Rudy was in. Mihail's mother was sick again, and Corin was in Munson Keep after a brief and unsuccessful return to his old calling. The others just nursed their miseries and drank themselves into a quiet stupor. The Black Bat was the loser's tavern. Bowman knew there were worse reputations. Brawlers favoured the sullen night. The unquiet dead flocked mysteriously to the crescent moon, and the hard core of outdoors professional thieves and murderers could be found at the Holy Hammer of Sigmar, but few quite as depressing. After five straight years at the bottom of the street's dicing league, Bauman had withdrawn the tavern from the competition. Somewhere else could lose for a while. The only songs he ever heard were whines, and the only jokes he ever heard were bitter. The door opened and someone new came in. Someone who had never been to the Black Bat before. Bauman would have remembered him if he'd seen him. He was a handsome man, dressed with the kind of simplicity that can be very expensive. He was no loser. Bauman knew at once from the set of his jaw and the fire in his eyes. He was at ease, but he was not the sort to be used to taverns. He would have a coach and horses outside, and a guard to protect him. "'Can I help you, sir?' Bowman asked. "'Yes.' His voice was deep and rich. "'I'm told that I can generally find someone here. An old friend. Rudolf Wegener.' Rudy looked up from his pot, and turned on his stool. The wooden legs creaked, and Bauman thought that this was finally going to be the tumble he had expected all along, but no. Rudy lurched upright, wiping his dirty hands on his dirtier shirt. The newcomer looked at the old man and smiled. Rudy, Alric, but it's been a long time. 
He extended a hand. A signet ring caught the light. Rudy looked at the man, with honest tears in his eyes now. Bauman thought he was about to fall flat on his face in front of his old friend. With a painful thump, Rudy sank to one knee. Buttons burst from his shirt, and hairy rolls of belly fat surged out from behind the cloth. Rudy bowed his head and took the outstretched hand. He kissed the ring. Get up, Rudy. You don't have to be like this. It is I who should bow to you. Rudy struggled upright, trying to push his gut back into his shirt and tighten his belt over it. Prince, he said, struggling with the word. Highness, I... Recovering himself, he turned to the bar and thumped it with his huge fist. Glasses and tankards jumped. Bowman, wine for my friend, Crown Prince Oswald, gin for Rudy, King of the Bandits, and take yourself a pint of your best ale with my compliments. 4. Once established in the palace of the von Konigswalds, Detlef set to work. As usual, the play would grow into its final form as it was rehearsed, but he had to get a structure for it, cast the parts, and rough out the characterizations. He was allowed access to the von Konigswald library, and all the documents relating to the death of Drachenfels. Here was de Selincourt's The House of von Konigswald, with its flattering portrait of Crown Prince Oswald as a youth, and Genevieve Dudonnet's surprisingly slender A Life. My Years as a Bounty Hunter in Reichwald, Britonia and the Grey Mountains by Anton Veit, as told to Joachim Munchberger, Constant Drachenfels, A Study in Evil by Helmholtz, The Poisonous Feast and Other Legends by Claudia Wildsee, and there were all the pamphlets and transcribed ballads, so many stories, so many versions of the same story. There were even two other plays. The Downfall of Drachenfels, by that poltroon, Matrak, and Prince Oswald, by Dorian Diesel. Both, Detlef was delighted to find, appalling rubbish. With the history of Sigmar, he had found himself up against too many masterpieces on the same subject. Here, he had new dramatic ground to mark out as his own. It would especially amuse him to trounce his old critic and rival Diesel, and he worked in a lampoon of some of the more shabby mechanisms of the old man's terrible play into his own outline. He wondered if Dorian was still infecting the drama students at Null University with his outmoded ideas, and if he would venture to Altdorf to see himself outstripped by the pupil he had dismissed from his lecture on Taradash, when Detlef had pointed out that the great man's female characters were all the same. The title bothered Detlef for some time. It had to have Drachenfels in it. At first, he favoured Oswald and Drachenfels, but the Crown Prince wanted his name out of it. The history of Drachenfels was impossible. He didn't want to remind audiences of Sigmar, and also... He was dealing only with the very end of a history that spanned thousands of years. 
Then he considered the death of Drakenfels, the fortress of Drakenfels, the great enchanter, defier of the dark and castle of shadows. For a while he called it Heart of Darkness. Then he experimented with the man in the iron mask. Finally, he settled down with the simple, starkly dramatic one-word title, Drakenfels. Oswald had promised to set aside an hour each day to be interviewed, to be questioned about the truth of his exploits, and he had endeavoured to track down those of his companions in adventure still living, to persuade them to come forward and discuss their own parts in the great drama, with the writer who would set the seal on their immortality. Detlef had the facts, and he had a shape for his play. He even had some of the speeches written down, but he still felt he was only beginning to grasp the truths that would lie behind his artifice. He began to dream of Drakenfels, of his iron face, of his unending evil, and after each dream he wrote pages of dark poetry. The great enchanter was coming to life on paper. Oswald was not without the aristocrat's traditional vanity, but he was strangely reticent on some subjects. He had commissioned Detlef's play as part of a celebration of the anniversary of his enemy's death, and he knew very well that the event would serve to increase his renown. Detlef gathered that it was important to Oswald to be in the public eye after some years as a background presence. He was already the elector in all but name, and his father wasn't expected to last out the summer. Eventually, he would have to be confirmed in his position and be, after the emperor, one of the dozen most men in the empire. Detlef's Drakenfels would silence any voices that might speak out against the crown prince. Yet, for all Oswald's political canniness in backing a production that would remind the world of his great heroism, just as he was ready to take part in the running of the empire, Detlef still found the crown prince occasionally a little too modest for his own good. Incidents that, in the accounts of others, were hailed as mightily heroic, he shrugged off with a simple, It was the only thing to do, or I was there first any of the others would have done the same. It wasn't until Rudy Wegener came forth to speak that Detlef began to understand what had happened in the Reichwald on the road to Drakenfels, and how Oswald had bound together his companions in adventure almost by sheer force of will. And it wasn't until the cult of Sigmar finally allowed him to examine the prescribed grimoires of Cain that Detlef realised quite how monstrously potent Drakenfels's age-spanning evil had been. He began to connect with the research he had done for the history of Sigmar, and, with a nauseating lurch in his stomach, tried to get his mind around the concept of a man, a mortal man born, who could have been alive in the times of Sigmar two and a half thousand years ago, and yet he was still walking when Detlef Cirque had been born. He had been four years old when Drakenfels died, exhibiting his prodigious genius in Nuln by composing symphonies for instruments he never got around to inventing. Detlef wrote speeches, sketched settings, 
and whistled musical themes to Felix Huberman, and Drakenfels began to take monstrous shape. 5. The tall, gaunt man who stuttered too badly crept away, his moment in the spotlight over. Next, shouted Varga Bruegel. Another tall, gaunt man strode onto the makeshift stage in the von Konigswald ballroom. The crowd of tall, gaunt men shuffled and muttered. Nine. Lowenstein, said the man, in deep, sepulchral tones. Laszlo Lowenstein. It was a fine, scary voice. Detlef felt good about this one. He nudged Bruegel. What have you done? For seven years, I was the actor-manager of the Temple Theatre in Talapheim. Since coming to Altdor, I have played Baron Trista in the Geheimnistrasse theatre production of The Desolate Prisoner. The critic of the Altdorf Spieler has referred to me as the premier Taradashian tragedian of his, or indeed any other, generation. Detlef looked the man up and down. He had the height, and he had the voice. What do you think, Bruegel? he asked, so low that Lowenstein couldn't hear him. Varga Bruegel was the best assistant director in the city. If there wasn't a prejudice against dwarves in the theatre, Detlef thought, he'd be the second best director in the city. His Trista was good, said Bruegel, but his Ottaker was outstanding. I'd recommend him. Have you prepared anything? Detlef asked, addressing a tall, gaunt man for the first time this morning. Lowenstein bowed, and launched into Ottica's dying declaration of love for the goddess Myrmidia. Taradash had claimed to be divinely inspired the day he wrote it, and the actor gave the best reading Detlef had ever heard of the speech. He himself had never played in the loves of Ottica and Myrmidia, and if he had to be compared with Laszlo Lowenstein, he might consider putting it off a few decades. Detlef forgot the tall, gaunt actor, and saw only the humbled Ottica, a haughty tyrant brought to the grave by an obsessive love, dragged into bloody deeds by the most noble of intentions, and only now conscious that the persecution of the gods will extend beyond his death and torment him for an eternity. When he finished, the crowd of tall, gaunt men, hard-bitten rivals who would have been expected to look only with hatred and envy upon such a gifted performer, applauded spontaneously. Detlef wasn't sure, but he thought he'd found his Drakenfels. Leave your address with the Crown Prince's steward, Detlef told the man. We'll be in touch. Lowenstein bowed again and left the stage. Do you want to see anyone else? Bruegel asked. Detlef thought a moment. No. Send the Drakenfelses home. Then let's have the Rudies, the Menishes, the Vites, and the Erzbets. 6. The Madwoman was quiet. In her early days at the hospice years ago, she had shouted and smeared the walls with her own filth. 
She told all who would listen that there were enemies coming for her. A man with a metal face. An old, young, dead woman. She was constrained for her own good. She used to attempt suicide by stuffing her clothing into her mouth to stop her breathing. And so the priestesses of Shalya bound her hands by night. Eventually, she settled down and stopped making a fuss. She could be trusted now. She wasn't a problem any more. Sister Clementine made the madwoman her especial concern. The daughter of rich and undeserving parents, Clementine Clausewitz had pledged herself to Shalya in an effort to pay back the debt she felt her family owed the world. Her father had been a rapacious exploiter of his tenants, forcing them to labour in his fields and factories until they dropped from exhaustion, and her mother, an empty-headed flirt, whose entire life was devoted to dreaming of the time when her only daughter could be launched in Altdorf society. The day before the first great ball, to which a pimply nine-year-old boy who was distantly related through marriage to the imperial family was almost certainly going to come, Clementine had run off and sought the solace of a simple, monastic life. The sisters of Shalya devoted themselves to healing and mercy. Some went into the world as general practitioners, many toiled in the hospitals of the old-world cities, and a few chose to serve in the hospices. Here, the incurable, the dying and the unwanted were welcome, and the great hospice in Frederaheim, twenty miles outside Altdorf, was where the insane were confined. In the past, these cloisters had been home to two emperors, five generals, seven scions of electoral families, sundry poets and numberless undistinguished citizens. Insanity could settle upon anybody, and the sisters were supposed to treat each patient with equal care. Clementine's madwoman couldn't remember her name, which was listed in the hospital records as Erzbet, but did know she had been a dancer. At times, she would astonish the other patients by performing with a delicacy and expressiveness that belied her wild, tangled hair and deeply etched face. At other moments, she would recite a long list of names to herself. Clementine didn't know what Erzbet's litany meant, and as one dedicated to a cult who foreswore the taking of any intelligent life, would have been horrified to learn that her patient was recalling all those that she had murdered. Erzbet was supported in the hospice by generous donations. A person named Dudone, who had never visited, had ordered the banking house of Mandragora to set aside a hundred crowns a year for the hospice, as long as the dancer was in its custody, and one of the first families of Altdorf also took an interest in her case. Whoever Erzbet had been, she had had some influential friends. Clementine wondered if she was the maddened daughter of some ashamed nobleman, but then again, her only regular caller was a remarkably fat and unsightly old man who smelled of gin and was clearly no one's idea of a leading light in high society. 
Who she had been was less important to the sister than who she would be. Now even Clementine had to admit Erzbet would most likely never again be anybody. Over the years she had withdrawn into herself. During the hours she spent in the sunny quadrangle at the hospice, she simply stared into emptiness, not seeing the sisters or the other patients. She neither sewed nor sketched. She could not or would not read. She had not danced for over a year. She didn't even have nightmares anymore. Most of the priestesses thought of Erzbet's quietness as a sign of merciful healing, but Sister Clementine knew this wasn't so. She was sinking fast. Now, she was a convenient patient, unlike some of the ravening creatures the Order had to deal with, but she was further into her own darkness than she had been when she was brought to the hospice. The ravers, the biters, scratchers, kickers, screamers and resistors got all the attention, while Erzbet sat still and didn't say anything. Sister Clementine tried to reach her, and took care to spend as much as an hour every day talking to her. She asked unanswered questions, told the woman about herself and brought up general topics. She never had the impression Erzbet heard her, but knew she had to try. Occasionally, she admitted to herself that she talked as much for her benefit as for Erzbet's. The other sisters were from a very different background, and were too often impatient with her. She felt a kinship with this troubled, silent woman. Then the man came, from Crown Prince Oswald, a suave steward with a sealed letter for High Priestess Margaret. Somehow, Sister Clementine was disturbed by the steward's sleekness. His carriage was black, and had discreet bars fitted on it, incongruous next to the generous upholstery, specifically for this mission. The von Konigswald arms, a three-pointed crown against a spreading oak tree, reminded her of her silly mother's silly dreams. She didn't know if her parents had given up searching for her, or simply never cared enough to make the effort in the first place. Margaret called her to the chapel, and told her to make Erzbet ready to take a trip. Clementine protested, but a simple look from the High Priestess of Mercy chilled her blood enough to dissuade her. The steward was with her when she went to see the madwoman in the courtyard. She thought the madwoman took notice of the man, and saw the old fears creeping back. Erzbet clung to her, kissing the silver dove on Sister Clementine's robe. She tried to soothe her patient, but couldn't be convincing. The steward stood aside, seeming not impatient, and didn't say anything. Erzbet had no personal possessions, had no clothes outside the white robe the hospital residents all wore. All she had was herself, and now, it seemed, she belonged to another, to the whim of a prince. Clementine took the dove-pin from her robe and gave it to Erzbet. Perhaps it would be a comfort to her. She stroked some semblance of tidiness into the woman's hair, kissed her forehead, and said her goodbyes. 
The steward helped detach Elsbeth's fingers from Clementine's robes. That night, the sister of Shalia cried herself to sleep. The next morning, she was surprised and a little ashamed to find her pillow stiff with dried tears. She made her devotions and returned to her duties. High Priestess Margaret never told Clementine that in the coach on the road to Altdorf, Ersbet had found uses for the two-inch steel pin on the back of the dove she had given the madwoman. She gouged out the steward's eye and, while he was screaming and floundering in his own blood, jammed the pin into her own throat. As the dancer assassin died, she named her dead for the last time. The steward had never introduced himself, so she had to miss him out. But, as she finally slipped into darkness, where evil things were waiting for her, she remembered to list her last victim. Ersbet Wegener 7. Kareth had proved skilled with more than simple shoemaking. When he had brought Detlef the samples of his other work, he had been promoted to head of the wardrobe department in what was now being called the von Konigswald Players' Theatre. He had seamstresses and tanners working under him, and was coming up with impressive designs for the special costumes. His leather suits of armour looked like iron, but weighed a fraction of what they ought to. The battle extras loved wearing them, and, on his own time, he came up with five separate leatherwork masks for Drakenfells. Detlef realised he was lucky to have found the little cobbler in the keep, otherwise he would have fainted under the weight of his costume halfway through the first act. At the last estimate, Twenty-five percent of the actresses who had been up for the role of Ersbet had fallen in love with Kareth, and after those months in Munson Keep he had been only too happy to oblige them. Detlef felt the barest touch of envy, but ignored it. There was so much to do. 8. Lily Nissen made an entrance while Detlef was busy shouting at Bruegel about prop swords. Darling, he screamed, his voice raising a full octave. Dear heart, she answered. They flew into each other's arms and kissed noisily. Everyone stood and watched the greatest actor and actress in the Empire play an impromptu love scene. You're twice as lovely as you were the last time I saw you, Lily. Your radiance knows no bounds. And you... My genius, you have written me the greatest part any actress could hope to fill. I kiss each of your supremely talented fingers. Afterwards, Detlef told Bruegel, It's a good thing that cow is playing a six-hundred-year-old in this one. It's the first time she's ever done anything near her real age. And Lily shouted at her dresser, That fat, smug, oily monster! That foulest of worms, that viper-tongued tyrant, only a personal summons from the great prince of Ostland would persuade me to step into a room with that pus-oozing vermin. 
let alone play opposite him in another of his rot-awful, shit-guts melodramas. Nine. Laszlo Lowenstein met his patron at dead of night in the back room of a supposedly empty house. He did not care who the man was, but often wondered what he hid behind his mask. Lowenstein's career had had its ups and downs since he was forced to quit Talabheim, a few paces ahead of the city inquisitors. A man of his talents and his habits was too easy to find, he reflected. He needed friends. Now he was in the von Konigswald players. He was protected by his association with the Crown Prince, even by his work with Detlef Cirque. But still, he returned to his old patron, his original patron. Sometimes, years would go by without the man in the mask. Sometimes, they would meet on a daily basis. Whenever Lowenstein needed him, the man got in touch, usually through an intermediary. It had never been the same intermediary twice. Once, it had been a warpstone altered dwarf, with a cluster of tentacles around his mouth and a jellied-over eye just opening in his forehead. This time, it had been a slender little girl, dressed all in green. He would be given an address, and would find the man in the mask waiting for him. Laszlo, the even, expressionless voice, began. It's good to see you again. I hear you have been having a run of fortune lately. The actor was tense now. Not all his patron's requests had been pleasant, but sat down. The man in the mask poured him some wine, and he drank. Like all the food and drink his patron had served him, it was excellent, expensive stuff. An indifferent house, don't you think? He looked at the room. It was undistinguished, bare plaster, discoloured except where icons had hung. There was a rough table and two chairs, but no other furniture. I do believe it's due to be accidentally burnt down tonight. The fire may spread to the whole street, the whole quarter. His mouth was dry now. He took more wine and sloshed it around his mouth. Lowenstein remembered another fire in Talabheim, and the screams of a family trapped in the upper stories of a fine house. He remembered the look of blood in the moonlight. It was red, but it seemed quite black. Wouldn't that be a tragedy, my dear friend? A tragedy. The actor was sweating. Imagining expressions on the man's mask, imagining inflections in his voice. But there was nothing. Lowenstein's patron might just as well have been a tailor's dummy brought to life as a real man. He spoke as if he were reading his lines without any effort, just to get the words right. 
you have won yourself a fine role in the crown prince's little exercise in vanity, have you not? Lowenstein nodded. The title role. Yes, but it's still a supporting part. Detlef Sirk, the playwright, is taking the leading role, the young Prince Oswald. Lowenstein's patron chuckled, a sound like a machine rasping. Young Prince Oswald. Yes. How apt. How thoroughly apt. Lowenstein was conscious of the lateness of the hour. He had to be at the palace early tomorrow to be fitted by Kerith the cobbler with his leather iron outfit. He was tired. And you play? Drakenfels. The chuckle came again. Ah, yes. The man in the iron mask. That must be uncomfortable, don't you think? An iron mask. The actor nodded, and the man in the mask laughed outright. What do? Come on now, Laszlo. Spit it out. What do you want of me? Why nothing, my friend, just to congratulate you and to remind you of your old attachments. I hope you shan't forget your friends as you achieve the fame you so richly deserve. No, I hope you shan't forget. Something small was crying softly in the next room. It bleated like a goat. Lowenstein felt the uncertain stirrings of his old desires. The desires that had led him to his nomadic life, that had made him a wanderer from city to city. Always cities, never towns, villages. He needed a population large enough to hide in but he needed to hide while putting his face before audiences every night. It was not an easy situation. Without his mysterious patron, he'd have been dead seven times older. Lowenstein controlled himself. I don't forget. Good. You've enjoyed your wine, I trust. The crying was quite loud now, not like a goat or a lamb at all. Lowenstein knew what awaited him next. He wasn't as tired as he thought. He nodded his head to his patron's question. Excellent. I like a man who enjoys his pleasures, who relishes the finer things in life. I enjoy rewarding them. Over the years, I've greatly enjoyed rewarding you. He got up and opened a door. The room beyond was lit by a single candle. The thing that cried was tied to a cot. On a table beside it were laid out a tray full of shining silver implements, such as Kerith the cobbler might have or one of the barber-surgeons of Ingoldstrasse. 
Lowenstein's palms were slick now, and his nails dug into them. He finished his wine with indecent haste, wiping a trickle from his chin. Trembling, he got up and walked into the other room. Laszlo, your pleasure awaits you. 10. Detlev was discussing sets with Crown Prince Oswald's architects of the actual Fortress of Drakenfels, with the intention of staging the play in its grand hall. The advantages were obvious, but so were the drawbacks. Some parts of the castle would have to be restored to their original condition, and others remade as dressing rooms, scenery docks, and actors' quarters. A stage would be built in the Great Hall. Initially, Detlef was tempted by the idea of having the play take place in real time, with the audience tagging along after the characters as they made their way to the fortress and then penetrated its interior. But the scheme was too reminiscent of the history of Sigmar for Oswald to authorise. Besides, while the audience would be few enough in number, only the most important citizens of the Empire would be privileged to attend the performance, they were not likely to be in the first bloom of youth. It would be difficult enough to transport the creaky and antique dignitaries to the fortress by the gently sloping road that had been impassable and demon-haunted in Oswald's days, let alone the vertiginous path the adventurers had taken. Even if Detlef's cast could brave the perils, it would be likely that some high priest or lord chamberlain would take a nasty tumble from the sheer cliffs of Drakenfels. This would be the crowning achievement of his career. This single performance. But all the while... Detlef was planning to prepare a less lavish version of his text, more suited to ordinary theatres. He saw no reason why Drakenfels shouldn't enter the repertory of every company in the Empire, on the condition that substantial royalties were paid him. He already had Guglielmo putting out feelers for a theatre in Altdorf, where the play could have a good run after its much-publicised premiere. There was already much interest, with the involvement of the Crown Prince doing a good deal to offset Detlef's bad reputation. Detlef was waiting for a good bid, from a house which would let him stage his play by his own lights, and take the central role himself. Currently he favoured Anselmo's on Brechtstrasse, but the more experimental Temple of Drama was running a close second. Anselmo was just a bit too wrapped up in regurgitating 200-year-old productions of Taradash's lesser works for the burghers and merchants who came to Altdorf and felt they had to snore through a play while in the city. Detlef glanced over the architect's sketches and put his initials to them. He was satisfied with their suggestions, although he would have to go himself to Drakenfels before making any final decisions. After all, it should be safe now. The great enchanter had been dead for twenty-five years. Detlef! Detlef! A problem! It was Varga Bruegel, 
wading into Detlef's chambers with his usual perpetual expression of anxiety. It was always a problem. The whole art of drama was nothing but a succession of problems solved, ignored, or avoided. What now? Detlef sighed. It's the role of Menish. I thought I told you to settle with Jesualdo. I trust you in matters dwarvish, you know. You ought to be an expert. Bruegel shifted on his feet. He was not a true dwarf, but the stunted offspring of human parents. Detlef wondered if his trusted lieutenant didn't have a touch of the warpstone in his nature. A lot of people in the theatrical profession had an iota or two of chaos in their make-up. Detlef himself had had an extra toe on his left foot, which his lamented father had personally amputated. There's been some controversy over your selection of the Tilian gesture for the part, said Bruegel, waving a long curl of paper covered in blotty signatures. Word got out, and some of the dwarves of Outdoor for presenting this petition. They're protesting against the representation of all dwarves on the stage as comic relief. Menish was a great hero to the dwarves. And what about Yuli the traitor? Is he a great hero to the dwarves? Yuli wasn't a real dwarf, as you well know. He's also not likely to be the source of much comic relief, is he? I can't think of many stab-in-the-back gags. Bruegel looked exasperated. We can't afford to upset the dwarves, Detlef. Too many of them work in the theatre. You don't want a scene-shifter's strike. Personally, I hate the smug bastards. Do you know what it's like, being turned out of taverns for being a dwarf when you aren't one, and then being turned out of dwarf taverns for not being a real dwarf? I'm sorry, my friend, I wasn't thinking. Bruegel calmed down a little. Detlef looked at the illegible petition. Just tell them I promise not to make any unwarranted fun of Menish. Look, here, I'm making some cuts. Detlef tore up some already discarded pages. Accidentally, the petition was among them. There, no more short jokes. Are satisfied? Well, there's another objection to Jesualdo. Detlef thumped his desk. What? Now, do they know that geniuses need peace of mind to create? It's the one-armed dwarf actor we saw. He's insisting he have the role, that he's the only one who can play the part. But Menish only gets his arm torn off at the very end. I admit we could do some clever trickery with a fake limb full of pig guts and have a very convincing horror scene, but he, he'd never be able to go through the whole drama without the audience noticing the stiff and inactive hand. Besides, the fool was at least twenty years too old for the part. Bruegel snorted. He would be, Detlef. He's a real menish. 11. The prisoner was going to make an escape attempt. Anton Veit could see Erno the burglar tensing himself for the breakaway. They were only three streets away from the townhouse of Lord Leidenbrock, the citizen who had posted reward on the man. Once Veit dropped his charge off and collected his bounty, Leidenbrock would be free to do whatever he wanted to get his property, twenty gold crowns, some jewels belonging to the countess, and a gilded icon of Ulrich, back. 
and since the thief had fenced the merchandise in another town and drunk away all the money, Leidenbrock would probably turn his mind towards extracting repayment in fingernails or eyes, rather than more common currency. The Lord had a reputation for severity. If he hadn't, he would have hardly employed Vite. The bounty hunter could tell precisely when Erno would make his run for freedom. He saw the alleyway coming a hundred yards away, and knew his man would try to duck into it, hoping to outdistance Vite and find some willing blacksmith to get the chains off his arms and legs. He must think the old man wouldn't be able to run after him. And of course, he was right. In his youth, Veit might have raced after Erno and brought him down with a tackle, but then again, he would more likely have done exactly what he was going to have to do now. Veit, said the burglar, couldn't we come to, to some arrangement? Here was the alley. Couldn't we? Erno swung his chains at the bounty hunter. Veit stepped back, out of range. The burglar pushed aside a fat woman nursing a child. The baby started bawling, and the woman was in Veit's way. Get down! he shouted, drawing his dart pistol. The woman was stupid. He had to shove her aside and take aim. The child was squealing like a roasted pig now. The alleyway was narrow and straight. Erno couldn't weave from side to side. He slipped on some garbage and fell, chains tangling about him. He rose again and ran, reaching for a low wall, sharply conscious of the pain in his twice-broken, twice-set wrist. Vite brought his pistol up and fired. The dart took Erno in the back of the neck, lifted him off his feet, and brought him down in a heap of limbs and chains, amid the filth of the gutter. Evidently the alley was used mainly by the inhabitants of the upper stories of the adjacent houses as a receptacle for their wastes. The stones were thick-grimed, and the smell of dead fish and rotting vegetables hung like a miasma in the air. Veit had been trying for the thighs. That should have brought Erno down, but kept him breathing. The money was the same, dead or alive but now he would have to haul the deadweight carcass to Leidenbrock's house, and he was breathing hard already. He leaned against a slimy wall and fought for breath. A physician had told him that something was eating him up from the inside, a sickness that might be the result of his lifelong addiction to the strong cigars of Araby. It's like a black crab feeding inside you, Vite the man had said, and it'll kill you in the end. Veit didn't mind. Everybody died. If it came to a life without cigars or death with them, he'd not have hesitated about his choice. He took out a cigar now, and his tinderbox. He drew in a double lungful of smoke, and had a coughing fit. He hawked black, ropey phlegm, and made his way down the alley, steadying himself against the walls. Erno was dead, of course. Veit pulled out his dart and wiped it clean on the corpse's rags. He reloaded the pistol, setting the spring and the safety catch. Then he unlocked the chains, and slung them over his shoulder. Chains were expensive items in his line of work. 
He'd been using these, forged especially by dwarf blacksmiths, for over ten years. They were good chains, and had kept far more dangerous men than Erno in his custody. He took the dead man by his bare feet. He'd sold the boots after chaining him up, and dragged him back to the street. As he pulled, there were sharp pains in his chest. The black crab was settling on his ribs, he thought, eating away at the muscles holding bone together. And now his skeleton was grinding itself to dirt inside him. It wouldn't be much longer before he collapsed like a jellyfish, useless to himself. His aim wasn't so good these days either. Good enough, he supposed, but he used to be a champion shot. When bounty hunting had been slow, he'd been able to pick up extra income from winning contests. Longbow, crossbow, pistol, throwing knife. He'd been the best with them all. And how he'd taken care of his weapons. Each was honed to the perfect sharpness, oiled if need be, polished and ready to kiss blood. He still tried to keep up. But sometimes things were more difficult for him than they had been. Twenty-five years ago, briefly, he had been a hero. But fame passes quickly, and his part in the downfall of Drakenfels had been minor enough to be overlooked by most balladeers. That's why he had allowed Joachim Munchberger to publish Veit's own account as a book. The mountebank had disappeared with all the profits, and it had taken him some years, working between jobs, to track him down and extract payment. Munchberger must have had to learn to write with his left hand. Now the whole thing was about to start up again. Crown Prince Oswald's emissaries had found him, and asked him to come forward and talk to a fat actor for some new version of the tale. Veit would have refused, but money was offered, and so soon he would have to go through the whole dull story again for this debtless Cirque, a runaway debtor himself by all accounts, and again be overlooked while young Oswald luxuriated in the golden glow of glory. Oswald. He had come a long way down the road since his days as a snot-nosed boy. Soon he'd be picking his first emperor, while blubber-bellied Rudy Wagoner was drowning himself in gin, crazy Ursbet was raving in some cell, and Lady Eternity was gorging herself on virgin's blood. And Anton Veit was where he'd always been, out on the streets, searching for the wanted and unwanted criminals, converting the guilty into crowns. Oswald was welcome to his position. Erno was getting heavier. Veit had to sit down in the street and rest. A crowd gathered around him as he watched over his goods, but soon went away again. Flies were buzzing about the dead man's face, crawling into his open mouth and nostrils. Veit hadn't the strength to shoo them away. So, haloed by insects, the two proceeded together towards the house of the fine gentleman. Twelve. Detlef woke up to find himself face down in a sea of manuscript pages. He had fallen asleep at his desk. By the clock, it was three in the morning. 
The palace was cold and quiet. His candle had burned low, spilling wax onto the desk, but the flame still burned. Sitting upright, he felt the dull throbbing in his head that always came with periods of extreme overwork. Sherry would help. He always had some nearby. He pushed his chair back and took a bottle from the cabinet near the desk. He swigged a mouthful from the bottle, then poured himself a glass. It was a fine stuff, like all the luxuries of the von Konigswald palace. He rubbed together his chilled hands to get the warmth back into them. He ordered the pages on the desk, shuffling them together. His working text was nearly complete. All the alterations prompted by his interviews with Rudy Wegener, Menish the Dwarf, and the Crown Prince were pencilled in, and he doubted whether the testimony of the bounty hunter Veidt or the vampire Lady Dudonet would make much difference. Research was the skeleton of the play, but the flesh on it was all Detlef Sirk's. His audience would expect no less. Oswald had even encouraged him to depart from history at a few points, the better to reach the truth of the matter. Would that all patrons were as enlightened in the matter of artistic license. His headache began to fade, and he reread a few pages. He had been working on his curtain speech, a summation of the drama when he had fallen asleep, and an ink trail scratched across the bottom of the last sheet of paper. He'd blotted his soliloquy with his cheek, and guessed the ink would be dried in by now. He must look a fool. His own words still moved him. He knew only he could do justice to such a speech. Only he could convey the triumph of good over evil, without falling into bathos or melodrama. Strong men would weep, as Detlef as Oswald spoke over his fallen foe, finding at last a touch of sorrow for the ending of even a life such as Drakenfels had led. He had planned to have Huberman underscore the scene with a solo gamba, but now he decided that the music wouldn't be necessary. The lone voice, the stirring words, would be enough. Let joyful towers a tintinabulation sound, that the enchanter great is under good ground. And let the infernal churches sound their bells to welcome Constant Drakenfells. Outside the window lay the grounds of the palace, and beyond them the sleeping city. There was a full moon, and he could see the immaculately laid-out lawns as if in a monochrome etching. The Crown Prince's ancestors, the previous electors of Ostland, stood in a row on pedestals, seeming staid and monolithic. Old Maximilian was there, in his younger days, waving a sword for the empire. Detlef had seen the current elector being assisted about the place by his nurses, blathering to all who would listen about the great old days. Everyone in the household knew the time of Maximilian was drawing to an end, and that the days of Oswald would soon be beginning. The architects Oswald had engaged to assist in the settings for the play were also planning to remodel some of the palace. More and more, the crown prince was taking over the business of the von Konigswalds. He spent most of his day closeted with high priests, chancellors, imperial envoys and officials of the court. 
the succession should be smooth, and Detlef's Drachenfels would mark the start of the Oswaldian era. An artist is not always set aside from the course of history, he supposed. Sometimes an artist could as much make history as a general, an emperor, or an elector. He scratched his moustache and drank more sherry, savouring the quiet of the palace by night. It was so long since he had known sustained quiet. The nights of Munson Keep were filled with terrible groans, the screams of those who slept badly, and the incessant drip of the wet walls and ceilings. And his days now were a total cacophony of voices and problems. He had to interview actors and the leftovers of Oswald's adventurers, he had to argue with those too hidebound to see how to convert his ideas into actuality. He had to put up with the shrill complaints and nauseating cooing of Lily Nissen. And through it all, there was the clumping of booted feet on wood as actors stamped through rehearsals, the hammerings of the workmen constructing devices for the play, and the clatter of the cast members learning to fence for the fight scenes. Most of all, there was Bruegel, always roaring, Detlef! Detlef! A problem! A problem! Sometimes he asked himself why he had chosen the theatre as an outlet for his genius. Then he remembered. There was nothing to compare with it. A cold hand caressed his heart. Out there in the gardens... Things were moving, moving in the shadows of the elector's statues. Detlef wondered if he should raise the alarm, but something suggested to him that the shapes were not assassins or robbers. There was an unearthly languor to their movements, and he thought he detected a faint glow as of moonlight to their faces. There were a column of them now, robed like monks, their shining faces deeply shadowed, they moved in complete silence towards the house, and Detlef realised with a chill that they weren't displacing the grass and gravel as they walked. They trod on the air, floating a few inches above the ground, the cords of their ropes trailing behind them. He was frozen to the spot, not with fear exactly, but with fascination as if under the influence of one of that species of venomous serpents that chooses first to charm, then to bite. The window was open, but he did not remember unfastening it. The night air was cold on his face. The monkish figures floated higher now, feet above the ground, drifting upwards towards the palace. Detlef imagined sharp eyes glittering in their indistinct, half-seen faces. He knew, with a sudden burst of panic, that whatever these beings might be, they were here for a purpose, to visit him, to communicate specifically with Detlef's Cirque. He prayed to the gods he'd neglected, even to the ones he didn't believe in. Still, the figures rose into the air. There were ten or Twelve of them, he thought, but perhaps more, perhaps as many as a hundred or a thousand. Such a crowd couldn't assemble in the gardens of the palace, but perhaps they were there despite all possibility. After all, 
men didn't float. A group of the figures came forward and hovered outside the window, barely out of Detlef's reach. There were three, and the one in the centre must be the spokesman. This figure was more distinct than the others, its face was more defined, and Detlef could make out a forked black beard and a hooked nose. It was the face of an aristocrat, but whether a tyrant or a benevolent ruler, he could not tell. Were these the spirits of the dead, or demons of darkness, or some other variety of supernatural creature as yet uncatalogued? The floating monk looked at Detlef with calm, shining eyes, and raised an arm. The robe fell away, and a thin hand appeared, its forefinger extending towards the playwright. Detlef, sir said the figure in a deep male voice. You must go no further into the darkness. The monk spoke directly into Detlef's mind, without moving his lips. There was a breeze blowing, but the apparition's robes weren't moving in it. You should beware. The name hung in the air echoing in his skull before it was uttered. Drakenfels. Detlef could not speak, could not answer back. He was being warned, he knew, but against what? And to what purpose? Drakenfels. The monk was alone now, his companions gone, and fading away himself. His body suddenly caught the wind and was twisted this way and that, coming apart like a fragile piece of cloth in a gale and wafted away on the air currents. In a moment, there was nothing left of him. Covered in a cold sweat, his head hurting more than ever, Detlef fell to the floor and prayed until he fell into a swoon. When morning came, he discovered he'd watered and fouled himself in fear. Act 3 1 it was a typical riverboat romance. Sergei Bukharin had travelled down the Erskoy from Kislev, an ambassador to the empire from Tsar Radi Boka, overlord of the north. He joined the Emperor Luitpold just after the confluence of the Erskoy and the Talabek. Genevieve was immediately taken with the tall, proud man. He had won his scars championing the Tsar against the altered monstrosities of the northern wastes, and wore his hair and moustaches in long braids threaded with ceramic beads. He radiated strength, and his blood was richer than any she had tasted since her retirement to the convent. Aside from Henrik Crowley, Oswald's steward, Sergei and Genevieve were the only passengers on the Lewitpold travelling the length of the Talabek to Altdorf, 
There was a glum and withdrawn elven poet, who had come down from Kislev with Sergei and debarked at Talabheim, but he kept his purposes to himself, and was shunned and mistrusted by Captain Yorga and his oarsmen. Of course, Genevieve was shunned and mistrusted too, but they seemed better able to deal with her condition than this alien, unknowable creature. At Talabheim, the cabins were swelled by an influx of merchants, a pair of imperial tax collectors, and a major in the service of Karl Franz, who insisted on debating military matters with Sergei. Genevieve spent the long, slow days on the long, slow river below decks, dreaming restlessly in her bunk, and her dizzying nights with Sergei, delicately picking off his scabs and sampling his blood. The Kislevite seemed to enjoy the vampire's kiss, as most humans do if only they allow themselves, but was not otherwise all that interested in his undead lover. When not in her arms, Sergei preferred the company of Major Jarl or Crally. Genevieve had heard that the Tsar's people put little store by women in general, and vampire women in particular. There was the famous example of the Tsarina Catherine, who had sought the dark kiss and extended her reign over Kislev, a conspiracy of her great-great-grandchildren, frustrated at the block she represented to the dynastic succession, had led to her well-merited assassination. The vampires of Kislev and the world's edge mountains were all like Weizsäck, self-important, truly dead monsters, who at once looked down on humankind as cattle and feared the day-dwellers for their hawthorn and silver. She never pressed the matter with Sergei, but she guessed the brave warrior was a little afraid of her. That could well be the attraction for him, the desire to overcome a breath of fear. For her part, she was pleased to pass the dull journey, mile after mile of tree-lined banks, and the eternal grunting and straining of the bonded oarsman, with a strong taste in her mouth, and a roughly handsome face to look at. By the time they were within a few days of Altdorf, she was already growing bored with her Kislevite soldier diplomat, and although they exchanged accommodation addresses, she knew she would never see him socially again. There were no regrets, but there were no really pleasant memories either. The Lewitpold upped oars as it was hauled to the quayside, between two tall-masted ocean-going merchant ships, down from the Sea of Claws with goods from Albion, Norska, and the New World. Sergei strode down the gangplank, saluted her from the docks, and marched off to the court, presumably intending to stop off with Major Jarl at the first boardy house along the way to remind himself of the feel of a real woman. To her surprise, Genevieve found a tear welling in her eye. She wiped the red smear away and watched her lover walk off with his friend. My lady, said Crowley, impatient now the trip was ended, the Crown Prince's coach is waiting. It was an impressive vehicle and out of place on the malodorous docks of Altdorf between the stacked-up goods and the dray carts. 
liveried servants waited by the black and red carriage. The arms of von Konigsvold were picked out in green and gold. Crowley gave a dock worker a crown to carry Genevieve's luggage from the Lewitpold to the coach. She refrained from mentioning that, for all her girlish appearance, she could best the emissary's bruiser in an arm-wrestling contest and pick up a heavy trunk one-handed. Genevieve bade a respectable farewell to Captain Yorga, who looked relieved to be rid of his half-dead passenger, but wasn't afraid enough not to suggest she book a return passage with him, if she intended to go back to the convent in a month or so. After years in the convent, the scents and sounds of Altdorf were again a revelation. The Lewitpold had pulled into the docks just after sunset, torches had been lit to facilitate late workers, and Genevieve could smell, taste, and hear as well as any creature of the night. Here was the largest city in the empire, indeed, the known world, built upon the islands of the Reich and the Talabek, but extending widely on both banks. Altdorf was a city of bridges and mudflats, surrounded by tall, white walls with distinctive red tiles. Hub of the empire, home of the imperial court and the great temple of Sigmar, and known, so the guidebook said, for its universities, wizards, libraries, diplomats, and eating houses. Also, as the guidebooks omit to mention, its cut-purses, spies, scheming politicians and priests, occasional outbreaks of plague, and ridiculous overcrowding. None of this had changed in twenty-five years. As they pulled into the city, Genevieve noticed that yet another layer of dwellings had been built upon the mudflats, creating a permanently wet, permanently unhealthy beehive structure in which the poor, dock labourers, dwarven wall engineers, street traders, lived in a distinct counterpoint to the fine houses of Altdorf's rich. There weren't many vampires, because of the bridges, Weizsack and his kind would have found themselves penned in on all sides by running water. Were she ever fully to die and become like them, one of the truly dead vampires, a walking corpse with an eternal bloodlust, she would have to avoid this city for ever. For now, she drank in all the sensations, seeking out the pleasant scents of good Altdorf cooking and a ready-to-be-loaded cargo of herbs, and ignoring the mud, the rotting fish, and the sheer press of unwashed humankind. Left to herself, she would be glutted on blood tonight, but she supposed other arrangements had been made for her. A shame, for here there was life in the night. The crescent moon would be opening for business, and other taverns, the theatres, Concert halls, circuses, gaming houses, all the rich, gaudy, rotten, beguiling pursuits of the living. The things which, in six and a half centuries, Genevieve had been unable to put behind her. The door of the carriage swung open, and an elegant man got out. He was so simply dressed that, 
For a moment, Genevieve took him for another steward. Then, recognition came. Oswald. The crown prince grinned and stepped forward. They embraced, and she heard again the call of his blood. She touched his bare neck with her wet tongue, connecting electrically between beard and collar with his life force. He broke the embrace and took a good look at her. Genevieve, my dear, it's so hard to get used to. You're the same. It could have been yesterday. Twenty-five years. To me, Highness, it was yesterday. He waved her formality away. Please, no titles. It's always Oswald to you, Genevieve. I owe you so much. Recalling herself unconscious and at the mercy of the iron-faced fiend of her dreams, she responded, Surely it is I who owe you, Oswald. I still live only by your sufferance. He had been a beautiful boy, with his golden hair and his clear eyes. Now he was a handsome man, with darker colouring, lines of character, and a man's beard. He had been slender and wiry, surprisingly strong and agile in battle, but still slightly awkward with a sword in his hand. Now he was as well-muscled as Sergei. His body felt hard and healthy beneath his jerkin, and his tights revealed well-shaped calves and thighs. Oswald von Konigswald had grown up. He was still barely a prince, but he looked every inch the elector he was soon to become. And his eyes were still clear, still bright with integrity, with emotion, with adventure. Impulsively, he kissed her. She tasted him again, and this time it was she who drew back, for fear that her red thirst would overwhelm decorum. He helped her into the coach. There's so much to tell, Genevieve, he began, as they trundled through the crowds of the docks towards the city thoroughfares. So much has happened. A street singer was performing by the Bridge of Three Towers, a comic song about a woodcutter's daughter and a priest of Ranald. When he sighted the arms upon the approaching carriage, he switched to the ballad that told of the death of Drakenfels. Oswald reddened with embarrassment, and Genevieve couldn't help but be a little satisfied to see him flush. This version of the tale was entitled The Song of Bold Oswald and Fair Genevieve, and imputed that the prince had taken on the great enchanter for the love of his long-dead lady. She wondered, not for the first time, whether there had ever really been anything between them. Looking back on it, Genevieve supposed it would have been strange had they not fallen in love on the road to Drakenfels. But in his terms, if not hers, that was half a life ago. Even Oswald was not about to present a vampire barmaid at court. When the bridge and the song were behind them, Oswald began to talk of his theatrical venture. I have engaged a very clever young man. Some call him a genius, and some a damned fool. Both factions are right, but generally the genius outweighs the fool, 
and perhaps it is the foolery that fuels the genius. You will be impressed with his work, I am sure. Genevieve allowed herself to be lulled by the creak of the wheels, the clap of hooves on cobbles, and the pleasant fire of Oswald's voice. The carriage was nearing the Altdorf Palace of the von Konigswalds now. They were in the wide streets of the city's most exclusive area, where the mansions of the foremost courtiers stood in ground spacious enough to accommodate a veritable army of lesser men. Smartly uniformed militiamen patrolled the streets to keep out the bad elements, and torches burned all night to light the way home for the weary aristocrat after a hard evening's toadying and prancing in the corridors of the imperial palace. Genevieve had not often been in this quarter during her century in Altdorf. The crescent moon was back near the docks, in a bustling, lively, dirty avenue known as the Street of a Hundred Taverns. I'd like you to talk to Detlef Cirque, to give him the benefit of your recollections. You play a leading part, of course, in his drama. Genevieve was amused by Oswald's enthusiasm. She remembered him as a boy declaring that were he not expected by his family to take the role of a lector after his father passed on, he would have chosen to be a travelling player. His poetry had won many plaudits, and she sensed that the grown man regretted that the demands of public life had prevented him from continuing to wield his quill. Now, by association, he could return to the arts. And who, Oswald, is to play me? The Crown Prince laughed. Who else? Lily Nissen. Lily Nissen? That's ridiculous. She's supposed to be one of the great beauties of the age, and I'm... Barely pleasing to look upon. I knew that'd be your reaction. In Kislev, they say, beware the vampire's modesty. Besides, all is equal. I'm to be played by a dashing young genius who has broken more hearts than the Emperor's militia have heads. We are speaking here of the theatre, not of dry-as-dust historical tomes. Thanks to Detlef Cirque, we'll all live forever. My darling, I'll already live forever. Oswald grinned again. Of course, I had forgotten. I might also mention that I have met Lily Nissen, and, startling though she undoubtedly is, she cannot compare to you. So flattery is still considered an accomplishment at the court of the Emperor. The coach paused, and there was a rattling of chains. Here, we're there. The great gates, inset with a wrought-iron von Konigswald's shield, swung open, and Oswald's coach turned into the wide driveway. There was some commotion up ahead, outside the palace itself. Trunks were piled high, and people were arguing loudly. An imposing, slightly overweight young man in an elaborate and undeniably theatrical outfit was shouting at a quavering coachman. Beside them, a dwarf was hopping from one foot to another. There were other outlandishly dressed characters present, all serving as an audience for the great-voiced shouter. "'What's this?' Oswald cried. He clambered out of the still-moving coach 
and strode towards the knot of arguers. Detlef, what's happening? The shouter, Detlef, turned to the crown prince and fell briefly silent. In an instant, Genevieve felt the young man, the young genius, if Oswald was to be trusted, catch sight of her. She was leaning from the coach. They exchanged a look each was to remember for a long time thereafter, and the moment was past. Detlef was shouting again. I'm leaving, Highness. I don't need to be warned twice. The play is off. I'd rather be back in Munson Keep than persecuted by ghosts. My company and I are withdrawing from the project, and I strongly suggest that you drop the matter yourself, unless you want to be visited by floating monks who speak without speaking and carry with them the odour of the grave. And a strong suggestion that anyone who defies them will be joining them in the afterlife. 2. Detlev had taken hours to calm down, but Crown Prince Oswald had spoken reasonably and at length, trying to put some less threatening interpretation upon the monkish manifestations. Ghosts can be petty, misleading even, and yet they are not known for their intervention in mortal matters. He waved an elegant hand in the air, as if conjuring the harmless spirits of which he spoke. The palace is old, haunted many times over. That was all very well, Detlef thought, but Oswald hadn't stared the deathly things in the face and been given direct orders by the dead. It is said that whenever von Konigswald draws near death, the shades of his ancestors return to bear him away with them. When the grandfather for whom I am named lay comatose with the brain fever, the noseless spectre of Schlichter von Konigswald was seen waiting implacably at his bedside. Detlef was unconvinced. He still remembered the ghost monk's piercing eyes and bony forefinger. You'll pardon me for mentioning it, Highness, but in this case you seem to be in the pink of good health, while it is I who can boast no relationship to your noble house who has been placed under the threat of death. A grave look came over the prince. Yes, Detlef, he said gently. But my father, the elector, the crown prince nodded towards the corner of the room in which the Elector of Ostland was coughing gently as he played with his toy soldiers, mounting an assault on the coal-scuttle. "'Hurrah for the General!' cried Elector Maximilian. It must have been near his bedtime. Oswald looked at Detlef, and Detlef felt suitably chastened. The old man was indeed on the point of expiry. His mind had long since crumbled under the sieges of age, and his body was rapidly failing, but there was still the matter of the demon monks and their levitation tricks. A drink, Detlef. Detlef nodded, and Oswald poured out a generous measure of a stallion sherry. Detlef took the goblet and ran his thumb over the embossed von Konigswald shield. Here, in the warmth of a well-lit room, with the calm, unaffected Oswald and a battery of well-armed servants, the phantoms of the night seemed less menacing. If he came to think about it, 
The monks were far less impressive a manifestation than the tricked-up appearance of Drachenfels's demon-pig servitors he was planning for the play. If it came to it, the afterlife could not compete with a Detlef Cirque production for supernatural spectacle. So that's settled. Your production will continue? Detlef drank, feeling better. There was still something that troubled him, but he instinctively trusted the Crown Prince. Anyone who could walk alive out of the fortress of Drakenfels must have some experience with the unearthly. Fine, but I'll want you to detail some of your guards to watch over the company. There have been too many accidents, you know. Kaczynski had broken his ankle thanks to a carelessly anchored or tampered-with piece of scenery. Gesualdo, the jester, had been struck down with a mysterious sweating sickness, and Varga Bruegel was having to read his lines in rehearsal. Someone had broken into Laszlo Lowenstein's rooms and shredded his collection of playbills, and every bit player and scene shifter was telling a spook story of some sort. The only thing that was running as expected about the production was that Lily Nissen was proving awkward and hiding in her rooms most of the time. She had expended more energy on fluttering her doubtless counterfeit eyelashes at Oswald than on learning her speeches. Detlef had heard of blighted productions before, and none could have been more thrice-cursed than the history of Sigmar. But there were more tripwires and hidden pits along this route than he had a right to expect, and the company had not even made its way to Drakenfels itself yet. That might not be ill-advised, Detlef. We both have more than enough enemies in Altdorf. Oswald summoned a servant, and gave him brief instructions. Under the command of my trusted aide, Henrik Kralley, at the disposal of your company tomorrow. Your rooms will be guarded by night. The servant hurried off. And I'll have your chamber exercised by the priests of whichever god you favour. I don't hold out much hope, though. This place is too old for exorcisms to take. It's been tried many times, I believe, and there are always new ghosts springing up. There's a story about a bleeding child who trails his grave garments behind him, and there's the skull-faced governess who radiates an eerie blue light, not to mention the phantom dog who recites passages from Taradash. Oswald seemed to warm to the subject, and was displaying an unhealthy, childish relish in the dark history of his home. There's no need to elaborate, Highness. I believe I appreciate the situation. And our ghosts are nothing to the ghosts of the Imperial Palace. The first Emperor Luitpold was reputed to have been witness to no fewer than 183 spectral manifestations in his lifetime, and Albrecht the Wise's hair was white before he was thirty thanks to the sudden apparition of a demon of the most frightful appearance, dressed in the uniform of the Imperial Guard. "'The general has triumphed again!' shouted the elector holding high one particular lead hero. Eggs! Eggs all round! Eggs for the troops! The old man's nurse quieted him down and led him away by the hand to his bedroom. Oswald was embarrassed, 
but clearly felt for his father's condition. You should have seen him as he was when I was a boy. Detlef bowed slightly. Men are not responsible for their dotage, any more than they are for their infancy. There was a brief silence. The troubles passed from Oswald's face, and he turned to his guest. And now you must meet the heroine of your piece, Genevieve Dieudonnet. The pale girl came forward, curtsied prettily, and offered her slim white hand to Detlef. He bowed to her and kissed her knuckles. She was cool to the touch, but didn't have the dead, slightly rancid appearance of the other vampires Detlef had met. It was difficult not to think of her as the equal in age and experience of any of the young actresses and dancers Detlef had known in the theatre. She hardly seemed more than a year or two at most out of her schooling. Ready to embark upon her first freedoms, fully prepared to be young, and yet she had seen six and a half centuries go by. Enchanted, he said. Likewise, she replied, I've been hearing about you. I trust that my reputation is in good hands with your quill. Detlef smiled. I shall have to rewrite several speeches now I have seen you. It would be unnatural for anyone to chance across such beauty and not remark upon it. Genevieve smiled too. Her eye-teeth were a fraction longer and sharper than a normal girl's would have been. Evidently you and Oswald have studied bottom-kissing flattery under the same tutors. The crown prince laughed. Detlef, to his surprise, found the undead woman charming. We must talk, said Detlef suddenly keener on an interview. Tomorrow, in the daytime, we could take tea and go through my text. It is still developing, and I would greatly appreciate your thoughts upon the drama. Tomorrow it shall be, Mr. Sirk. But let's make it after sunset. I'm not at my best in the daytime. 3. His patron had done so much for him. It was about time Lowenstein did something for his patron, even something as distasteful, dangerous, and illegal as grave robbery. Besides, it wasn't really grave robbery. The woman wasn't yet buried. His patron had told him that she could be found packed in ice at the Shrine of Moor. The corpse was awaiting the Emperor's coroners, and... Lowenstein's pleasure. The tall, gaunt actor passed through the door of the shrine, glancing up at the black stone raven that stood on the lintel, its wings spread to welcome the dead, and those whose business was with the dead. Opposite the shrine was the raven and portal, the tavern favoured by the priests of Moor. The black bird on its sign swung in the wind, creaking as if squawking to its cousin across the way. Nearby were the imperial cemeteries, where the richest, the most lauded, the most famed were interred. In Altdorf, as in every city, Moore's town was the district of the dead. The man in the mask had smoothed Lowenstein's way considerably. A guard had been drugged and lay in the foyer of the low, dark building, 
his tongue protruding from a foamy mouth. The keys hung precisely where his patron had told him they would be. He had been in mortuaries before, for recreational purposes, and had no undue fear of the dead. Tonight, leather against his face, he had no undue fear of anything. He pulled the watchman out of the way, so he could not be seen by any late passer-by. The shrine smelled strongly of herbs and chemicals. He supposed that, if it didn't, it would stink of the dead. This was where those who died questionably were brought. The emperor's coroners examined the bodies for traces of foul play or hitherto unlisted disease. It was a shunned place. Just to make sure, he felt for the watchman's heart. It was strong. He pinched the man's nostrils and put a hand to his sticky mouth until the beat was stilled. His patron wouldn't mind. Lowenstein thought of it as an offering to more. There were sounds outside in the night. Lowenstein pressed himself into the shadows and held his breath. A party of drunken revellers passed by, singing about the woodcutter's daughter and the priests of Ranald. Oh, my pretty lad, what have you done to me? My father will do with his axe to thee. One of them relieved himself loudly against the marble wall of the shrine, bravely cursing more god of death. Lowenstein grinned in the dark. The soak would come to know the god eventually, as do all, and his curse would be remembered. More, god of death, and Shalya, goddess of healing and mercy, were the deities who really ruled the lives of men, the one for the old, the other for the young. You could placate the one, or beg for the intercession of the other, but in the end, Shalya would weep and more would take his prize. Lowenstein felt closer to more than all the other gods. In the Nuln production of Taradash's immortal love, he had played the god of death, and had been comfortable in the black robes, as he was comfortable now in the armour and mask of Drakenfels. Tonight he could meet his patron mask to mask, he thought, he had kept his costume with him and worn the mask for his trip to the shrine. It served to shield his identity, but also he felt a strange ease when hidden behind it. Two days ago he had noticed horny ridges budding under the skin of his forehead and felt a roughening of his normally sunken cheeks. He must have caught a touch of the warpstone. The mask served to conceal his alterations. With the leather over his face, he felt himself stronger, more alive, more powerful. If his patron had given him this mission in Nuln, he would have been anxious, jittery. Now he was cool and decisive. He was changing, altering. The drunks were gone. The night was quiet. Lowenstein proceeded to the back room of the shrine, where the bodies were kept. It was down a short stairway, its walls set into the earth. He touched tinder to a candle 
and carefully descended the broad stairs. It was cold, and slow-melting ice dripped to the flagstone floor. Strong-smelling herbal possets hung from the beams, so the nostrils of visitors would not be offended. On Ray's beers lay the suspiciously dead of Altdorf, or at least the suspiciously dead the Emperor's court cared about. Here was a well-dressed young blood, his arm ending in a ragged stump, his throat torn out by some beast. Here was a little boy, his face flushed unnaturally red, his belly opened. Lowenstein stopped by the child, seized by a desire to place his hand on the apparently fevered brow, to find it hot or cool. He passed on, glancing at each in turn. Death by violence, death by illness, death by causes unknown. All death was here. The priests of Moor had placed amulets of the raven around the necks of all their charges to signify the flight of the spirit. To the cult of Moor, remains were just clay. Bodies were revered for the sake of the living. The spirit was in the hands of the gods. Finally, Lowenstein came to the beer he was looking for. The dead woman was out of place in such a wealthy shrine, in her drab and patched gown. She looked more the type to be left in the street to rot than to be pored over by the coroners and troubled by the concern of Crown Prince Oswald. All deaths among such people were suspicious, and yet few attracted the attentions of the priests of Moor. All the other corpses here were from the moneyed classes. This woman had clearly been poor. Her throat had been raggedly cut, and the instrument lay on the ice beside the body. It was the dove of Shalya, blasphemously used in suicide. Lowenstein touched the open wound and found it cold and wet. He brushed the lank, greying hair from the haggard face. The woman might have been pretty once, but that would have been long before her death. As a young man, Lowenstein had seen Erzbet dance. It was in Nuln, in a travelling fair in the Grand Square. The woman had performed an exhausting solo, combining the high, balletic techniques of the Nuln opera with the wild, primitive displays of the forest-dwelling nomads. He had been aroused by the performance, by the tanned legs that kicked up her skirts, and by the dark eyes that caught the firelight. She hadn't paid him any notice. That had been the night Bruder Weisserholler, king of the city's thieves and murderers, was killed. The next day the fair was gone, and the criminals of Nuln were without a ruler. Erzbet had been good. Twenty-five gold crowns was her price. It had never varied. Whether her intended was a mighty lord or a humble beadle, he had heard that, poor fool. She always insisted her clients debate ethics with her and justify the removal from the world of those they wished to be rid of. And here she was, 
Moors meet at last. Her dead would be waiting for her, Bruder Vesserholler, and countless others. He hoped she remembered her ethical discussions now, and could justify each of her assassinations. He put down his candle by the corpse's head, and prepared to take what he had come for. If he were to plunder the other beers, he would doubtless find rings, coins, necklaces, stout boots, silver buttons, gold buckles. But Erzbet had no goods to lose, had nothing Lowenstein's patron could possibly want. Except her heart. Lowenstein took the small knives, honed to a razor's edge from their oilcloth, and tested the one he chose against the ball of his thumb. It stung, as it sliced with the merest touch. And her eyes. 4. Genevieve took off her tinted glasses and looked up at the fortress of Drakenfels. It seemed different now, smaller. It was a pleasant spring day, and the ride up from the village was almost easy. The last time she had been this way, they had avoided the road. It was littered with the bones of those who had thought they could just walk up to the castle and knock on the door, and scaled the precipitous cliff. There were other abandoned castles in the grey mountains, and they were no more imposing, no more haunted than this one. There were none of the traditional signs of the evil place. Birds sang, the local vegetation flourished, milk went unsoured, animals were not mysteriously agitated. Even with her heightened awareness, Genevieve could sense nothing. It was as if the great enchanter had never been. Of course, Oswald's men had prepared the way. Henrik Crally had sent out a squadron of cleaners, cooks, carpenters and servants to make the place ready for occupation. There had been some initial reluctance among the villagers who had lived all their lives in the shadow of Drakenfels to hire on with the company, but the Crown Prince's gold had overcome many objections. The lad who saw to her horse after she dismounted must have been born well after the death of Drakenfels. The young of the region were reluctant to believe the stories told by their parents and grandparents, and some of the old were impressed enough by the ballads of Oswald and Genevieve to conquer their aversion to the ruin and take positions with Detlef's troop. The genius was in good spirits as he rode at the head of his gypsy caravan of actors, musicians and show people. He was a good conversationalist, and eager to talk with Genevieve. They had been through the minutiae of Oswald's quest, of course, but the dramatist was also interested in the rest of her long life, and was skilled at drawing out incidents she hadn't spoken of for centuries. The breadth of his learning was impressive, and she found him well informed about the great men and women of earlier eras. She had known Taradash, had seen his plays during their original runs, and cheered him greatly with her opinion that the great dramatist was less skilled as an actor and a director than as a writer. A regional touring company today 
could better the original outdoor productions of Taradash's masterpieces without breaking a sweat, she opined. Quite. Yes, exactly, he agreed. It was a performance in itself, moving the company from the von Konigswald Palace in Altdorf to the remote mountain fastness, and they had been on the road for some weeks. But the journey flew by, with stopovers at the best inns and leisurely evenings with the cast discussing their roles and practising their sword-fights. By comparison, the original journey had been long, uncomfortable, and fraught with danger. Genevieve felt nothing as she passed the sights of battles long since won. She had made brief pilgrimages to the graves of Conradin, though there had only been bones to bury, and Heinroth, and found the markers Oswald had put up gone. There were no spirits lingering in the forests. Even the bandits had been cleared out years ago by the local militia. Despite it all, Genevieve found it difficult to be in company with Laszlo Lowenstein, the actor cast as Drachenfels. What she had seen of his performance was frighteningly good, and, although he seemed off stage to be an ordinary, conscientious craftsman, merely happy to be thrown a meaty role, she couldn't forget the impression he made when he pulled on the mask and tried to radiate evil. Even his voice took on the timber she remembered, and his demonic laughter, somehow amplified by a device inside his mask, was bone-chilling. Rudy Wegener was with the caravan, Menish the Dwarf and Anton Veit too. Veit was old, lean and ill. He avoided her just as he had avoided her the first time. Rudy was also in poor health, she assumed, with his great girth weighing heavy on his heart and his great thirst similarly straining his liver and lights. Genevieve gathered he had suffered a loss recently and approached him about it, but he hadn't been eager to talk of Erzbet. That had been a long time ago. It was a difficult subject to bring up, for Genevieve still recalled the first sign of the dancer-assassin's madness, her unprovoked attack. Otherwise, Rudy was still prone to boasting and garrulousness. He regaled the company with fanciful embroidered accounts of his exploits as a bandit in these very woods, confident that all who might contradict him, save Genevieve, were dead and in their graves. Only Menish, the lack of an arm notwithstanding, was much as he had been. Dwarves are more long-lived than humans, she realised. Genevieve understood that her one-time comrade had become something of a ladies' man since his injury forced him to abandon his life of wandering adventure. He was rumoured to have made several conquests among the girls of the chorus, and to be chasing the amorous record set by Kerith, the fragile little costume-maker, whose ways with the opposite sex were legendary. There was another dwarf in the company, Varga Bruegel, with whom Menish was always arguing. Detlef told her that Bruegel wasn't a true dwarf, but human-born, and that he hated to be taken for one. Menish was always thinking of cruel jests at Bruegel's expense, and Detlef, 
who held his assistant in high regard, had several times turned uncharacteristically severe and threatened to put off the one-armed swordsman along the way. It wasn't the same trip, though, and Oswald wasn't with them. He would have to join the company later, at the head of the second caravan, which would bring the audience to the play. Detlef was good company, and there was a spark between them she could not deny. But he was not Oswald, regardless of the role he was to take in the play. Then again, Genevieve knew she was not Lily Nissen. The star travelled in her own luxurious caravan, which was driven by a handsome, black-skinned mute from the Southlands, who acted as her personal servant and bodyguard. By his scars, Genevieve recognised him as essentially the woman's slave. The vampire had been presented to the actress, and neither party wished to further the acquaintance. Genevieve saw Lily's face as if it were a crawl with worms, and the actress pointedly refused to touch the undead woman's outstretched hand. Detlef, too, obviously had little time for Lily, but excused her on the ground that, for all her foolishness and temperament, she could indeed be a goddess on stage. She has the ability to make audiences love her, even if they would singly or in twos and threes, find her less appealing than the average monster of the night. She's probably possessed. The accidents that had plagued the production in Altdorf abated, perhaps because of the presence of several of Heinrich Kralli's pikemen. One inn along the way had been reluctant to accommodate the players, the owner having had a bad experience in the past with the theatrical profession but Crowley's men had quietly convinced him to change his ways. The only peculiar incident had taken place in a village at the foot of the Grey Mountains, where the caravan had been booked to stay overnight at a well-reputed traveller's rest-stop. Detlef had been sampling the excellent food on offer and quizzing Genevieve about the Bretonia of her girlhood, asking particularly about the still-remembered great minstrels of the day and the precise qualities of their voices. Bruegel had come to their table in some state, accompanied by the owner of the hostelry. "'How many are we?' Bruegel asked. "'In the caravan, I mean. Couches, carts, wagons. "'Um, twenty-five, I think. "'No, I was forgetting Lily's boudoir on wheels.' Twenty-six. What's the matter? Have we lost someone? No, said the hosteller apologetically. Uh, quite the reverse. You have one too many. Detlef was taken aback. You've obviously miscounted. No, uh, the Crown Prince's messenger specified twenty-six vehicles, and so I set aside space in the yard for that number. The space is filled, and there is one carriage left over. It's Lily's, said Bruegel. It would be, replied Detlef. And she's not happy about leaving it in the road. She wouldn't be. The hosteler seemed unduly upset, until Genevieve realised he must have recently been shouted at by Lily Nissen. The famous beauty could be a mad gorgon at times. Detlef continued with his meal, 
complimenting the hosteller on his lamb chops in wine sauce. The man was from Britonia, and justly proud of his fare. The thing I can't understand, Detlef, said Bruegel, is that we've counted the caravans twice over. No matter where we start, we get the same number. Twenty-seven? No, twenty-six. But there are still twenty-seven places filled in the yard. Detlef laughed. This is silly. You must have arranged the wagons wrongly, taking up too much room. You know what Crowley's ostlers are like. The wagons are as evenly spaced as old Maximilian's toy soldiers on a board. We'll haul one of the scenery wagons into the road to make room for the human flytrap. And have a drink. The next day, at the off, Detlef and Bruegel counted the wagons as they trundled up towards the mountain road. There, my friend, twenty-six. And our own wagon, Detlef. Twenty-seven. It had been a puzzle, but certainly paled when set beside Detlef's experience at the von Konigswald Palace. It was hard to take seriously an extra wagon as an omen of evil. But the next night, Kaczynski, the scene-shifter, still hobbling on his broken ankle, came up to complain. I thought you wanted me to bring up the rear of the caravan. I do, Kaczynski, or the heaviest, slowest wagon. It's the combination of your head and the scenery that keeps it back. You always have to catch up half an hour at the end of the day. Then who's that behind me? Detlef and Bruegel looked at each other and said in unison, The twenty-seventh wagon. And who's that? Who knows? They were camped in the open that night, the wagons together in groups. Four groups of six, with three left over. Twenty-seven. Detlef and Bruegel independently counted the wagons again, and came up with only twenty-six. But there were still four groups of six, with three left over. Detlef, concluded Bruegel, there's an extra wagon with us. We can't see all the time. Detlef spat into the fire. Genevieve had nothing to add. So, who is travelling with us? Detlef hadn't talked much that evening, and Genevieve hadn't been able to draw him out. He had had a conference with Crowley's men, and had them stand guard until dawn. When everyone else was asleep, Genevieve had counted the wagons. Twenty-six. She had an assignation with the youth playing Conradin that night, and fed well. He looked white and dazed the next morning, and avoided her for a while. So perhaps she had lost some of her control, and taken too much. But the journey was over now. She looked around for Detlef, but he was busy with Bruegel and the architect, arguing over sketches. They could only see Drachenfels as a giant stage set, to be exploited for maximum impact. Guglielmo, the Tilian business manager, was off with the local burgomeister going over a list of provisions ordered and paid for. Genevieve put her glasses on again, and saw better through the tint. The rest of the company were going merrily in through the great front gates, looking for their quarters, relieved to be off the road. 
Lily Nissen swept past with her little retinue. Slave, dresser, astrologer, face-paint advisor, and went into the castle, like a queen making a call on the lesser nobility. Genevieve stood on the road, hesitating. Looking behind her, she saw who else hesitated. Rudy. Veit. Menish. They each stood alone, looking at the fortress, remembering. Five. The first night in the fortress, Rudy threw a party and invited everyone. There would have been a party anyway to mark the end of the journey, but Detlef Cirque was kind enough to let Rudy throw it. Of course, Crown Prince Oswald had provided the food and wine, not to mention the fortress itself. But Rudy was there to bring the party to life. The last weeks since Oswald found him in the Black Bat had been good for Rudy. He hadn't been drinking less, but what he was drinking was of a better quality. He'd been telling the old stories again, with his usual improvements. But now there was a marked difference in the interest of his audiences. Detlef had listened attentively to his accounts of the original quest to Drakenfels, and the theatre people encouraged him to recall his other exploits. He had always liked theatre people. Erzbet had been with her gypsy circus when they first met. He and his band had passed themselves off as strolling players on many occasions. Now, at his party, the company were enjoying his best theatrical story. He was remembering the time when, shortly after holding up a party of noblemen in the Drakvold forest, he had been forced to stage a performance for his erstwhile victims in order to convince them that his band were indeed show people rather than bandits. In his retelling, he claimed that the Lord Hjalmar Polzig had recognised him straight away, but still insisted on the performance to humiliate Rudy. Surrounded by the Lord's militiamen, Rudy's bandits had improvised a tragedy about a bandit king and his dancing queen, and, at the close of the play, Polzig had been so moved that he decreed that Rudy should be rewarded and allowed to go free under the Lord's own protection. Detlef roared with laughter as Rudy told his story, impersonating the wily Lord and the brash young man he had been. Deep inside his drink-besotted brain, Rudy remembered the real Lord and the five good men he had strangled with their own bowstrings when he caught up with the bandits. He remembered the Lord's jailer, hardly more than a boy, and the way he had screamed as Rudy battered him to death against the stones of the prison before making an escape through the castle's stinking drains. Sobbing and befouled, the bandit king had crept away in shame like an animal of the forest. Those had been days of blood and filth and desperation. The more he spoke of the days of plunder and glory and adventure, 
the more Rudy came to know that this was the real truth of the matter. What had happened didn't matter any longer. Erzbet was dead. Polzig was dead. The boy was dead. His brain paced on the floor. The times were dead. But the stories lived. Detlef understood that, with his histories and his dramas, and Oswald too, with his play that would pass all their names down to future generations. Rudy, the dirty murderer, Rudy who howled in grief and fear as he smashed in the skull of an innocent child, would be forgotten. Rudy the bandit king, Rudy the stalwart ally of brave Oswald, would be remembered as long as there were stages to dress and actors to walk upon them. Reinhard Jesner, the chubby young player cast as Rudy, called for another story. Rudy called for another pot of gin. The fires burned low, and the stories ran out. Eventually, Rudy slumped insensible. He could see the others, Detlef laughing, the vampire Genevieve as pretty as she had ever been, Veit, haggard and silent, Bruegel arranging for more wine, but couldn't move himself from his spot by the fire. His belly weighed him down like an anchor. His limbs felt as if he were shackled to four cannonballs, and his back, his never set properly, never right again back, pained him as it had done for a quarter century, sending messages of agony up his spine. Detlef proposed a toast to Rudy Wegener, King of Banditti, and everyone drank. Rudy belched, the turnip taste filling his mouth, and everyone laughed. Felix Huberman, the master of the company's music, signed to a few of his players, and instruments were produced. Detlef himself took the shrill Rauschfife, Huberman, the portative organ, and others the Shorms, Dulcian, Fiddles, Lute, Kirtle, Cowhorn, Cornet, and Gamba. The ensemble played, and the singers sang, untrained voices joining with the trained. The old songs, the Miller of Middenheim, Mermidia's doleful lads, the elf king, the lament of Caracvan, the goat herd of Apuccini, come ye home to Bilbailey, a stallion mariner. The Reich is wide, a bandit bold, this over and over, to hunt the manticore, Sigmar's silver hammer, the pirate prince of Sartosa. Then, the older song. The near-forgotten songs. Menish croaked an incomprehensible dwarvish ballad of great length, and six women burst into tears at its conclusion. Huberman played an elven melody rarely heard by humans, let alone played by one, and made everyone wonder whether his ears weren't just a trifle too pointed, and his eyes on the large side. After some prompting from Detlef, Genevieve sang the songs of her youth, songs long dead except in her memory. Rudy found himself weeping with her as she sang of cities fallen, battles lost, and lovers sundered. 
Britonia has always had a reputation for luxuriating in melancholia. Trickles of red ran down the vampire's lovely face, and she was unable to continue. There are precious few Breton tales with happy endings. Then the fires were piled high again, and the musicians played for dancing. Rudy was unable to stand up, much less dance, but he watched the others at their pleasure. Genevieve capered solemnly with Detlef, a courtly affair with many bowings and curtsies, but the music grew wilder, and dresses flew higher. Jesna took up with Ilorna Horvathi, the dancer cast as Erzbet, and swung her around in the air, so her skirts brushed perilously close to the fire. Rudy could have been watching his younger self. Ilona was a spirited, athletic dancer, and she could perform acrobatic tricks, the like of which Rudy had never seen. Jesna, who had taken Rudy into his confidence, assured him that Ilona's imagination and physical stamina was not confined to the vertical brand of dancing. But she missed something of the grace, of the abandon, of the seriousness of the original. He had talked to her, and she was a cheerful girl, pleased to give pleasure, but there was none of Erzbet's passion. Elona had never taken a life, had never spared a life. She had not lived at the edge of experience the way Erzbet had, and Elona Hovathi wouldn't end her days in self-murder on the road from a madhouse. Her hand fell on his shoulder. It was Veitz. It's over, Rudy. We're over. The bounty hunter was drunk, and his unshaven face was like a sagging skull. But he was right. Yes. Over. But we were here before, eh? Us old men. You and I and the dwarf and the leech girl. We were here when these play-actors were in their cribs. We fought, as they'll never have to fight. Vite trailed off, the light in his eyes going out, and keeled over sideways. Like all of them, he'd come out of Drakenfels a different man than he had been outside the gates. Rudy regretted that he had not seen the bounty hunter in twenty-five years. They had shared so much. They should have been lifelong friends. The fortress should have brought them together, especially those hours injured in the dark, waiting for Oswald's return, knowing that the prince would die, and that things with claws and teeth would be coming for them. The weight of wine shifted inside Rudy, and he desperately felt the need to piss. He shifted upright and staggered away from Vite, his head spinning like a child's top. Jesna loomed before him, saying something he couldn't make out. The actor clapped him on the back and sent him stumbling. The musicians were still playing. Elona was dancing alone now. He made it into the next room, away from the light and the clamour. After he had relieved himself into a cold fireplace, he turned to make his way back to his place by the fire, to his friends. She was in the doorway between him and the party.
he recognised her slim-hipped figure and long, dark hair at once. She wore her dancing dress, slit to the thigh on one side and immodestly tight in the bodice. Rudy, she said to him, and it was twenty-five, thirty years ago, the days of plunder and glory and adventure. Rudy, she extended an arm to him, her bracelets jingling. He felt the weights falling away from him and stood up straight. There was no pain in his back now. Rudy, her voice was soft yet urgent, inviting yet dangerous. He lurched towards her, but she stepped aside into the dark. She went to a door, and he blundered after her, pushing through it. They were in a corridor. Rudy was sure this was where they had fought the living gargoyles, but Oswald's men had cleaned it up, put fresh candles in the sconces, laid down carpeting for the visiting dignitaries. Erzbet led him on, into the heart of Drachenfels. In the chamber of the poison feast, a man waited for him. At first, because of the mask, he thought it was the actor, Lowenstein. It wasn't. The man looked up from the table at him. His eyes shone through the slits of his mask. He had cutlery laid out before him, as for a meal. But there were no forks and spoons. Only knives. The man picked up a knife. It shone like a white flame in his hand. Rudy, cold inside, tried to push himself away, back through the door. But Erzbet stood before the door. He could see her better now. Her low-cut bodice disclosed the great red gash, like a crushed mouth sideways in her breast. She threw her head back, and her hair fell away from her face. He could see that she had no eyes. Six. Lily Nissen's favoured method of communicating with her director-writer-co-star was through Nebenzal, her astrologer. If she was unhappy with a line of dialogue, or the performance of some lesser light on the stage, or the food served in her private rooms, or the noise made by the party she pointedly hadn't attended, or by the way the sun persisted on rising in the east every single morning, she dispatched Nebenzal to wine at Detlef. Detlef was beginning to feel quite sorry for the poor charlatan, who was finding his easy berth so unexpectedly rocky. It was the man's own fault, Detlef supposed, for not foreseeing in the cards, stars or entrails what a monster his employer would turn out to be. The company were in the great hall of Drachenfels, which had been converted into a theatre. Lily chose to make her entrance over the stage. As usual, she assumed there was no business connected with the play more important than her whim of the moment, and had herself borne in by her chair-carrying giant in the middle of a rehearsal. It was an early scene, where Oswald, in the palace of Altdorf, 
is visited by the projected spirit of the great enchanter. They debate in verse the conflict to come, and the major themes of the play are foreshadowed. Detlef was having Vargas Bruegel read his own lines, so he could concentrate on Lowenstein's performance and the lighting effect that would make him seem insubstantial. With the mask, the thin actor seemed a different creature altogether. Genevieve, who was sitting in on the rehearsal, was shuddering, probably reminded nastily of the real Drachenfels, and Detlef took that to be a tribute to Lowenstein's skill. When he could get perspective on the play, Detlef realised he was in danger of being overshadowed by the villain, and resolved to make his own performance the more masterful. He didn't mind. While he took pride in his acting, he disdained those stars, of whom Lily was most definitely one, who surrounded themselves with the most wooden, untalented supporting actors available, in order to make themselves seem better. During the journey to the fortress, Lily had tried to persuade him through Nebensal to cast some of her favourite walking statues in the other female roles in Drakenfels, and he had kicked the astrologer off his wagon. Having written, directed, and conceived the play, Detlef felt he could afford to let others shine in it. He planned on taking last billing as an actor in the programme, allowing the weight of his name to be felt as the creator of the piece, rather than as one of its interpreters. Lowenstein as Drakenfels was towering over Bruegel, vowing that his reign of evil would continue long after the punny prince's whited bones lay in forgotten dust when Lily made her unscheduled entrance, trailing her entourage. The black giant carried an oversized armchair without complaint. Lily sat primly in it, like a child being carried by a fond parent. Her crippled dresser limped a few paces behind, bearing a basket of sweetmeats and fruit, part of the star's special diet, and a few other functionaries whose exact purpose Detlef had never divined were also along to lend weight to their mistress's current gripe. Nebenzal strode up to Detlef, visibly embarrassed, but nerving himself to make the complaint. Lily snarled imperiously, like a mountain cat with delusions of leonine grandeur, and fixed her flaming eyes on him. He knew it was going to be a bad one. If she chose to air the problem in front of the entire company, it was bound to involve a major row. The other actors on stage and in the audience shifted nervously, expecting a firestorm of holocaust proportions. The foppish astrologer stuck out his fist and opened his fingers. The teeth were in his hand. Lily Nissen has no need of these, sir. He threw them on the ground. Kerith had carved them especially, working away at scraps of boar-tusk ivory. The wardrobe man was in the hall now, angry at the treatment of his work, but keeping quiet. He obviously had no wish to go back to being a cobbler, let alone a convict, and had correctly gauged the extent of Lily Nissen's vindictiveness and influence. So, it's a toothless hag you think I am now, Detlef Sirk, shrieked Lily, her face reddening. Her slave put her down, and she flew out of her chair, raging across the stage 
knocking Bruegel and Lowenstein out of the way. Detlef imagined angry eyes peering out from Lowenstein's mask. Lily wasn't winning herself any more admirers this morning. And of course, it was such a stupid thing to bitch about. Lily, it's no reflection upon your own teeth that I want you to wear these. It's the part you play. Lily rose to the bait. The part I play. Ah, yes, the part I play. And who cast me in such a role? Who created such a disgusting travesty of womankind with me in mind, eh? Detlev wondered if Lily had forgotten that Genevieve was with them. He suspected not. It was plain the women, vampire and vamp, didn't care for each other. Never in my career have I been asked to play such a part. Were it not for the involvement of my dear, dear friend Prince Oswald, who personally implored me to step in and fill out your petty little cast, I should have rent the manuscript to bits and flung it back into the gutter where it belongs. I've played empresses, courtesans, goddesses. Now you want me to play a dead leech! Being reasonable wasn't going to help, Detlef knew, but it was the only tactic he could think of. Lily, our play is a history. You play a vampire because Genevieve was, is, a vampire. After all, she lived this story. You only have to recreate it. Ha! And is the drama invariably subject to history? Do you mean to tell me you've changed nothing? for the sake of emphasis, to show yourself to the best advantage. There were mutterings at the back of the hall now. Nebenzal was looking distinctly sheepish, patting down his ridiculous wig, self-conscious now he found himself on stage, facing an unknown audience beyond the footlights. Of course, but... Lily was unstoppable. Her bosom heaved as she drew breath and continued. For instance, are you not somewhat too old and too fat? to play my good friend, the future elector of Osland, as he was when but a boy. Lily, Oswald himself asked me to play him in this drama. Given the choice, I'd probably want, and no reflection upon you, Laszlo, to play Drakenfels. The star flapped towards the lights, and came so far forwards her face was in shadow. The house lights came up. Well, if you've rewritten Oswald as an ageing and overweight child prodigy, then you can rewrite Genevieve as something more suited to my personality. And what, pray, might that be? An elf! No one laughed. Detlef looked at Genevieve. Her face was unreadable. Lily's nostrils flared and unflared. Nebenzal coughed to break the silence. Elven Lily might once have been, but she inclined rather to the voluptuous these days. Her last husband had referred to her as having the breasts of a pigeon, the lungs of a banshee, the morals of an alley cat, and a brain like black mountain cheese. Lowenstein laid a hand on Lily's shoulder and spun her round to face him. He was a full foot taller than her, and his built-up Drakenfell's boots brought him up on a level with her silent giant. Unused to such treatment, 
She raised a hand to slap the impudent actor, but he caught her wrist and started whispering to her in a low, urgent, scary voice. Her colour faded, and she looked quite afraid. Nobody else said anything. Detlef realised his mouth was hanging open in astonishment and shut it. When Lowenstein had finished his speech, Lily blustered an apology, an unheard-of thing for her, and backed out, dragging her slave, her minions, and astrologer with her. Nebenzal looked appalled as he was yanked out of the great hall. After a moment, there was a spontaneous round of applause. Lowenstein took a bow, and the rehearsals continued. 7. Maximilian stood to attention while the general was speaking. It was late, but the general had awoken him with secret orders. The general told him he must get out of bed, get dressed, and go down to the battlefield, where the fate of the empire was to be decided. After the emperor, the general was the most important military leader in the land and Maximilian always wanted to impress him with his obedience, resourcefulness, and courage. The general was the man Maximilian would like to be, would have liked to have been. When the orders were finished and understood, Maximilian saluted and put the general into his top pocket. This was a serious business. These were times of grave danger. Only Maximilian stood between civilization and anarchy, and he was determined to do his best or die. The palace was quiet at this time of night, quieter in the days, too, now that Oswald's theatre friends had gone. Maximilian missed them a little. There had been one dancer who had been sweet on him and liked to join in with his battles, making suggestions and asking questions, even though Nurse disapproved of her. Nurse disapproved of a lot of things. In his slippers, Maximilian was almost silent as he proceeded through the corridors and down the stairs. His breath was short, and he was getting a stitch, but the general would want him to continue. He would not let the general down, no matter what. He thought he saw robed figures in the shadows of one passageway, but ignored them. Nothing could keep him from the fray. Now he was needed. The battle room was not locked. There were several armies on the table. Goblins, dwarves, elves and men. And in the centre was a castle. The objective. The imperial standard was flying from the great tower of the castle. The flag was tattered but waved proud. The armies were clashing already. The room was filled with the tiny sounds of their weapons clanging together, their cannon popping. When they were hit, the soldiers screamed like shrilling insects. The tabletop battlefield was swarming with life. Miniature swords scraped paint from lead faces. The dead were melted into grey pools. Puffs of smoke rose. Battle trumpets sounded like echoes in Maximilian's head. The general had ordered him to hold the castle for the emperor. He needed a chair to step on before he could reach the table. 
He put his foot down on the battlefield, crushing a bridge to stickwood, pushing a platoon of wood elf war dancers into the painted stream. He pulled himself up and stood like a giant on the table. He had to duck to avoid a chandelier as he stepped up, into the castle. The walls barely came to his ankles, but he was able to stand in the courtyard. The defenders of the castle cheered to have such a champion. Moonlight came in through the tall, thin windows. The night battle swept across the table, backwards and forwards. The armies had lost all direction and were turning upon themselves. Sometimes all four forces appeared to combine to launch a new onslaught on Maximilian's castle. Mostly, every single soldier seemed at war with every other. He detected the claws of chaos in this business. The felt of the hill was torn as charges fell back from the castle walls and dark wood showed through the scratches. The general kept up Maximilian's morale as a wave of goblins clambered up the hill and breached the walls. Dwarven engineers pushed a war tower forwards. Cannonballs stung his shins. Still, he held the fort, at attention, saluting. The castle was in ruins now, and the armies were attacking him, trying to bring him down. The defence forces were sought out and slaughtered. Maximilian stood alone against the enemies. The wounds inflicted on his feet and ankle were flea bites. Bretonian soldiers poured fire over his slippers, but he stamped it out, and the fire spread back to their ranks. He laughed. The sons of Bretonia at war always were noted more for viciousness than valour. Then the battle wizards came forward and threw their worst spells at him. Frightful fiends swirled about his legs like fish, and he swatted them away with his hands. A three-headed creature, with eyes and a moor in its belly, flew for Maximilian's throat, and he caught it. It came apart like a cobweb in his hand, and he wiped it away on his jacket. Spears stuck to his calves, and he felt dizzy to be at such a height above the ground. Goblins were scaling his trousers, hacking through his clothes, and sinking hooks into flesh and bone. There were more fires. A ballista and several mortars were deployed. There were explosions all around him. His right knee went and he was pulled down. Small roars of triumph went up and his back was riddled with a million tiny shots. Knives small as headlice soared at him. Spears like needles jabbed. He fell across the battlefield, crushing the remains of the castle flattening the hill, murdering hundreds beneath him. He rolled onto his back, and the armies reached his face. They set off charges in his eyes, and he was blind. Berserkers set fire to his hair. Warrior wizards opened up channels to his brain. Pikemen attacked his neck. Fresh, conjured demons burrowed beneath his skin, excreting their poisonous filth. The general told him he was doing well, and that he must keep up the fight. In the dark, the Emperor Luitpold and all his court waited for him. Maximilian knew he would soon be permitted to leave the field of battle, to take his well-earned rest. There were medals, 
and honours and eggs for him. He would receive his just reward. The armies moved over him, laying waste to whatever they found. They captured the general and executed him. To the end, the man was a hero. His lead head rolled across Maximilian's chest and bounced lifeless onto the table, tired and relieved. Maximilian sank into darkness. The next morning, his nurse found him, lying dead among his beloved toy soldiers. Physicians were called for, but it was too late. The old elector's heart had finally given out. It was said that at least his death was sudden and easeful. The sad news was delivered to the new elector with his breakfast. Oswald von Konigswald wept. But he was not surprised. 8. Genevieve was on the battlements, watching the sun go down, feeling her strength rising. There was a full moon, and the view was lightly shadowed. With her night sight, she saw wolves loping in the forests and silent birds ascending to their mountain nests. There were lights burning in the village. She was stretching, tasting the night, wondering how she would drink this evening, when Henrik Crowley found her. My lady, he began, if I might beg a favour. Certainly. What do you wish? Crowley looked uncertain. This was not like Oswald's smooth and efficient cat's paw. His hand rested casually on his sword-hilt, in a manner that instantly disturbed Genevieve. During the long trip from the convent, she had gathered that not all his services to the von Konigswalds involved simple message-bearing. Could you arrange to meet me in half an hour, and bring Mr. Cirque with you, in the chamber of the poison feast? Genevieve raised an eyebrow. She had been avoiding that particular place above all. For her, the fortress held too many memories. It is a matter of some urgency, but I would appreciate it if you could raise it without alerting anyone. The Crown Prince has charged me with discretion. Puzzled, Genevieve agreed to the steward's terms and left for the Great Hall. She supposed the dead must have been taken from the table by now and given their proper burial. She would probably barely recognise the poison room. Thus far, she had encountered no ghosts, even in her imagination at Dragonfells. No ghosts. Just memories. Rehearsals had finished for the day, and the actors were being served in a makeshift canteen, Bruegel was haranguing the Bretonian cook about the lack of a certain spice in the stew, and the cook was defending the recipe handed down to him by his forefathers. Dovish buffoon, you have not lived unless you have tasted casserole à la Bordeaux. Jesna and Ilona Hovafi were all over each other in a corner, petting as they joked with other members of the cast. Menish was talking intently to Jesualdo, the actor playing him and gesturing extravagantly with his one arm, while the other dwarf nodded. On the stage, Detlef and Lowenstein were stripped to the waist, 
toweling off the sweat they had worked up practising the duelling seams. You've been giving me a fine dash about, Laszlo. Where did you learn the sword? Without his mask and costume, Lowenstein was diminished, seeming rather dull. At Nalm, I took classes from Valancourt at the Academy. I thought I recognised that vertical parry. Valancourt taught Oswald, too. You'd be a formidable opponent. I hope so. Detlef pulled on a jacket and buttoned it. Although plump, his muscles were well-defined. Genevieve gathered that he, too, was skilled with the use of the sword. He would have to be, given his fondness for heroic roles. Detlef, she said, could we have a word? In private, Detlef looked to Lowenstein, who bowed and walked off. An odd fellow, that, Detlef said. He's always surprising me, and yet... I get this feeling that there's something not all there about our man Laszlo. Do you know what I mean? Genevieve did. To her heightened senses, Lowenstein registered as a complete vacuum, as if he were a walking shell waiting to be ensouled. Still, she had met many people like that. In an actor, it was hardly surprising. It did not really matter who Lowenstein was off stage. Well... What's up, elf lady? Do you want me to dismiss Lily and hire a human being for the role? No. It's something mysterious. He smiled. You intrigue me. She smiled back, on the verge of flirting. Crally wants to see you. Us. In the poison room. She caught his scent in the air, and felt the pricking of the old thirst. She wondered how his blood would flow. I wish you wouldn't lick your lips like that, Genevieve. She covered her mouth and giggled. I'm sorry. He grinned. The poison room, eh? Sounds lovely. You know the story? Oh, yes. Children tortured. Parents left to starve. Another one of the great enchanter's charming little jokes. He'd have made a good match for Mistress Nissen, don't you think? Imagine the fun they could have had exchanging recipes for the best use of babies. You have not lived until you have tasted Enfant à la Bordeaux. <laughs> Lead on. She took his arm, and they left the great hall. Detlef winked at Kareth, the wardrobe master, as they passed through the door. The little man laughed and rubbed his neck. Genevieve blushed. She could imagine the stories that would be told during rehearsals tomorrow. Oh, well. After all these years, her reputation could hardly be more tarnished by an association with an actor. In the corridor, they continued to talk. Detlef was making a conscious effort to be charming, and she wasn't putting up too much resistance. Perhaps, if stories were to be told, she should make the effort to justify them. How does it feel to have those teeth, anyway? Aren't you forever cutting your lips? A witty reply came to mind. But then they entered the poison chamber and saw the looks on the faces of the people grouped around the table and the mess that lay on it. When Detlef had finished vomiting, Crowley told him who it was. 9. Detlef was relieved to learn that he wasn't the first to be sick. 
The body had been discovered by Nebenzal, the astrologer, and the little parasite had puked his breakfast at once. Even though he spent the greater part of his professional life peering into the entrails of chickens and cats, the exposed insides of a human being caused him much distress. Detlef wondered if there was a way of divining the future through the examination of vomit. Apparently, Nebenzal had been looking for some trinket misplaced by his mistress and opened the wrong door. He had a talent for awkwardness and, as everyone had noticed but Lily, absolutely no foresight. Detlef looked from face to face. Henrik Crowley was expressionless, a hard man faced with a hard situation, intent on not giving anything of himself away. Genevieve seemed beyond caring, but she was not making jokes any more. Besides, it would be difficult to tell if a vampire were shocked pale. Nevenzal was still sobbing quietly, clinging to one of Crowley's halberdiers, occasionally scraping at the regurgitated matter on his brocaded waistcoat. Varga Bruegel, whom Detlef had insisted on summoning, looked as he always did when faced with yet another problem, as if every disaster in the world were intended personally against him. And Rudy Wegener did not look like much at all. His face was still there, but it hung loose like a soggy mask thrown over a skull. Detlef's first thought was that the old bandit had been flayed, but Crowley had already performed the distasteful task of closely examining the corpse and knew exactly what had been done to Rudy. The eyes are gone, you notice. Fished out with a dagger or small knife, I'd guess. An unsqueamish man could do the job with his fingers, but he'd best wear gloves. Detlef had the unpleasant feeling that Crowley was talking from experience. Electoral houses needed a servant or two with more loyalty than scruples. It was hard to associate open, upright Oswald with this lizard-hearted iceman. But that's not what killed him. No. It looks like a wolf got at him, or a ravenous demon, something that attacked in a frenzy, devouring, tearing. Crowley smiled a one-sided smile. Yes, I thought that at first too. But look here. He pointed into the body cavity, lifting a flap of skin from the ribcage. No bones are broken. The organs are untouched. That, in case you're interested, is what a drinking habit like Wegener's does to your liver. The organ was red, swollen, and covered with pustules. It was obviously rotted through, even to someone who didn't know what a healthy liver looked like. Detlef thought he was going to be sick again. Crowley poked at the wounds. Whoever did this did it calmly and with great skill. Genevieve spoke. What exactly was done? My lady, all the fat has been neatly cut out of his body. Crowley left the dead thing alone, and the group moved away from it by unspoken mutual consent. Detlef was outraged. Why would anyone want to do that? The steward shrugged. Detlef realised that the man was enjoying this brief taste of command. For once... He was at the centre of things, not a simple creature of Oswald's. 
There are many possibilities, Mr. Sirk. A religious ritual, dedicating the sacrifice to some dark god, a wizard needing the material for a spell. Many enchantments require peculiar ingredients. Or it could be the work of a madman, an obsessive who kills in a bizarre manner in an attempt to tell us something. Like, eat less and take more exercise, I suppose. This is insane, Crally. A man is dead. Genevieve took his hand. That helped somehow. He calmed down. I'm sorry. The steward accepted his apology without sincerity. At the risk of being obvious, we must face facts. There is a murderer among us. They all looked at each other again, like participants in one of those dim, haunted castle melodramas in which the cast drop dead at regular intervals until the High Priest of Moore deduces who the killer is and the audience wakes up. And we must catch him without word of our troubles reaching the outside. I beg your pardon. Whatever we do must be done in secret. The Crown Prince would not want this to disrupt the smooth running of his play. I am here to deal with just such occurrences. You need not concern yourself. Know only this, that I will work to bring the murderer to justice as soon as possible. Bruegel spoke up. Denef, it might indeed be best to leave this to the Prince's men. But we can't just go on as if nothing has happened. Can't we? By my interpretation of the Crown Prince's orders, we have no other course open to us. Nebenzal was still shaking and moaning. Detlef nodded in his direction. And how do we keep the Popinjay silent? Crowley's mouth did something that, in another man, might qualify as a smile. Mr. Nebenzal has just been recalled to Outdorf. He left early this afternoon and has written to his employer, severing their relationship. The astrologer started and stared at the steward. I'm given to understand that many who quit Miss Lily Nissen's employ choose to leave in a similar manner. Nebenzal looked like a man just informed of his impending death. Don't worry, gutgazer, said Crowley. You'll be better paid for shutting up and going away than you would have been for staying around and blabbering to everyone. I believe a position could be found for you in Erengrad. The halberdier left the room, pulling Nevinzal along with him. Detlef wondered how the weedy little fraud would get by among the Norsemen and Kislevites of that cold port, on the borders of the northern wastes. He was furious with Crally by now, but had learned to be cool in his wrath. Nothing would be achieved if he threw a screaming fit like Lily Nissen. And I'm supposed to continue with the play, and incidentally it is my play, not Crown Prince Blessed Oswald's, while people are being slaughtered all the while. Crowley was resolute. If the Crown Prince so wishes it. I wonder, my dear steward, if Oswald would entirely approve of your actions. This gave Crowley pause but he soon snapped back. I'm sure the Crown Prince has every confidence in me. He did assign me these duties. I believe I have not been a disappointment to him in the past. Genevieve had walked back to the table, 
and was taking a close look at what was left of Rudy. For the first time, Detlef realised fully that, no matter how she seemed, the woman wasn't human. She had no fear of the dead, and indeed must have some familiarity with them. What are you doing? asked Crally. Feeling for something. Genevieve touched the corpse's head and shut her eyes. She might be praying for his soul, Detlef supposed, or doing arithmetic in her head. No, she said after a time. He's gone. Nothing remains of his spirit. Did you hope to read his murderer's face in his mind? Crowley asked. Not really. I just wanted to say farewell. He was a friend of mine, in case you have forgotten. He had a hard life, and was not well served by it. She left the body alone. One thing, she said. Yes. You are aware of the common superstition that a dying man's eyes hold the last sight he beholds, that a murderer may be betrayed by his image in his victim's pupils. They all looked at Rudy's face, at his empty eye sockets and flensed cheeks. Of course, Crowley was impatient now. This rot. Physicians and alchemists no longer think of... Quite, quite. The foolishness of another age, like the belief that Toad men from the stars ruled the world before the coming of chaos. Besides, his eyes are gone. That is precisely the point I wished to make. You and I know the story of the murdered man's eyes is nonsense. But Rudy's murderer might believe it. That would explain why he took the eyes. Crowley was taken with the thought. A superstitious man, then. A gypsy, or an Ostlander. I make no accusations. Perhaps a dwarf. They are known for their superstitious ways. Brass pennies for luck. Black cats drowned at birth. Bruegel bridled as Crowley turned to him. I'm no dwarf, he spat. I hate the little bastards. Crowley waved his protest away. Still, the vampire lady has a point. My lady, your intuitions are as sharp as they are said to be. There's another possibility, said Detlef, that this was done by no human agency. The supernatural is no stranger to these walls. Drakenfels was famed as a conjurer of demons and monsters. They were supposed to have been cleared out. But it's a huge building. Who knows what could have lived here all these years, festering in the dark waiting for its master's murderers to return. Genevieve touched a finger to her chin, obviously following Detlef's train of thought. She shook her head slightly, unsure. And we have brought back all the survivors of Oswald's adventures, as easy meat. Detlef was concerned for Genevieve, for Menish and Vite too, but Crowley had a single thought. The crown prince should be warned. He might not wish to come. Genevieve laughed. You really don't know your master very well, do you, Crally? This would only make him the more determined to be here. You could be right, my lady. Rest assured, 
I'll charge the guards with extra vigilance. This will not happen again. You have my word on it. 10. Alone in his room, Varga Bruegel drank and looked at himself in the mirror. He did not know who had assigned the various quarters for the company and assumed no cruel slight had been intended, but his was the only bedroom he had seen in the Drakenfells, equipped with a floor-to-ceiling mirror. This must have been where some harlot witch painted and primped. The great enchanter had had many mistresses down through the millennia, unlike Varga Bruegel in his meagre forty-seven years. Moonbeams filtered down through the windows and lit the room, casting a baleful light over everything. Bruegel sat in his chair, feet dangling a hand's span above the carpet, and looked himself in the eye. He remembered his parents, and the air of disappointment that always hung about them. His sisters, born before him, were above average height. His younger brother had been as tall, straight and handsome as anyone could wish until he fell in battle in the service of the Emperor, giving their parents another reason to be uncomfortable in his presence. His mother and father had blamed each other for his condition, and had spent their lives searching each other for signs of the deformity that had been passed down through their mating to their son. Of course, it had been embarrassing for them to explain to all callers at their home that, no, they didn't have a dwarf servant. They had a dwarf son. And he wasn't a true dwarf. He was a midget. He started his second bottle. He was drinking sloppily now. There were stains on his shirt. His skin itched under his clothes, and he wriggled. He had run away and joined a travelling circus, become a clown. Soon, he was running his own circus, although he had full-size men to deal with people, and branching out into the theatre. There had been true dwarf clowns working in his circus, but they had not accepted him as one of their own. Behind his back, or to his face, they called him a freak and a warped monstrosity. Which is what he was. He had no wife, no mistress, and bathed in private. His body was a secret, and he kept it well but he examined himself daily for new changes. Often, there were two or three a month. And with the changes came new abilities, new senses. The tubers under his arms, held together by bat-like webbing, could tune in to people's emotions. He always knew how others felt, to what degree they were disgusted by him. So far, his face had not been affected, but he had to wear gloves for some years now, to cover the eyes in the palms of his hands, the eyes that could see sounds. He was a midget. He was also an altered and a freak. There was a new word for what he was. He had heard scholars use it, 
first of plants cultivated unnaturally, then of two-headed calves, wall-eyed dogs and the like, and now of humans affected by the warp-stone, progressing beyond their flesh, becoming creatures of chaos. Varga Bruegel was a mutant. 11. Karl Franz I of the House of the Second Wilhelm, protector of the Empire, defier of the Dark, emperor himself and the son of emperors, had come calling on the palace of von Konigswald. The foyer table was piled high with black-edged condolence cards delivered by messenger, but Karl Franz laid his down in person. He brushed aside the stewards and guards and walked briskly through the palace in search of the new elector. Others would have visited Oswald, the grand theogenist of the cult of Sigmar, and the high priest of the cult of Ulrich would have endeavoured to be polite to each other throughout the lying in state of the old elector, Maximilian. Representatives of the city-states and electoral provinces, emissaries from the major temples of Altdorf and the halfling Moot would have called with messages of sympathy. Karl Franz came alone, without the usual pomp that accompanied his every move, and saw Oswald man to man. There were few others in the land who could warrant such treatment. The Emperor found Oswald in Maximilian's study. Oswald's study now, going through old papers. Oswald dismissed the secretaries and ordered wine to be brought. Your father was a great friend to me when I was a boy, Oswald. In many ways, he meant more to me than my own father. It's difficult to rule an empire and be the head of a family, as I know too well. Maximilian will be greatly missed. Thank you. Oswald was still withdrawn, moving as if in a dream. And now we must think of the future. Maximilian is buried with honour. You must be confirmed in the crown as soon as possible. Oswald shook his head. This must be difficult for him. Karl Franz remembered the agonising ceremony that had surrounded his own ascendance to the throne. The days of torture as the electors debated the succession. He had never believed the verdict would be for him. He understood through his own sources that the voting had been eight to four against on the first ballot and that Maximilian had talked round all but one of the other electors by the end of the session. If he truly ruled, rather than held together a squabbling collection of principalities, then he ruled only on the sufferance of the house of von Konigswald. The coronation will be at Drachenfels, after the play. The electors will all be there, and the other dignitaries. We should have no need to reassemble them a few weeks later for another of these stately ordeals. You are right, of course, Oswald. But an empire expects due ritual process. Ruling is not enough. One must be seen to rule. Oswald looked up at the portrait of his father in his prime. He had a falcon on his hand and stood in the woods at the forefront of the group. A golden-haired child was by his side. The young Oswald. 
I've never noticed before. That youth taking the bird. He's dressed as a falconer, but... Carl Franz smiled. Yes, it's me. I remember those days well. Old Luitpold disapproved. What if the future emperor should fall from his horse, or lose an eye to an angry bird, or get stuck by a boar? He thought the future emperor should be treasured like a painted egg. Your father understood these things better. Yes, I believe he did. And already I see signs that young Luitpold thinks of you as I thought of your father. Maybe I, too, try to cosset and smother the future emperor. I hope I'm not the domestic tyrant old Lewitpold was, but I see all the signs around me. Circles come around between our houses. It was an impressive painting. Karl Franz wished he could recall the artist. He must have been one of Maximilian's hunting friends. He certainly had a feel for the forests. You could almost hear the wind in the trees, the cries of the birds. Soon we'll be in the woods again, Oswald, on the road to Drakenfels. There'll be good hunting along the way. I must confess that when you proposed the trip, I wasn't sure about it. But I've always wanted to see the sight of your great victory, and I'm weary of the stifling comforts of palaces and courtiers. It's been too long since we stalked a stag or sang the old songs and I was sorry that your friend Sirk's history of Sigmar fell apart. Middenland sank a sum of my money in it, you know. I've been looking forward to seeing him act. The ladies of my court tell me he's quite the thing. Yes, Emperor. Emperor and Elector, eh? I remember when we were just Karl, Franz and Oswald. There's one thing I've always wondered, though. What, Emperor? When we were young men, when our fathers said you were mad to go up against the great enchanter. Yes. Why did you not ask me to come along? I'd have danced for the chance of such an adventure. Such a battle. Over the years, Kim Newman has cited a number of sources of inspiration for Drakenfels. In a 1999 interview with the Warhammer fantasy roleplay fanzine Warpstone, he cited the idea that he wanted to do something like 42nd Street, the Let's Put On A Show Busby Berkeley dance number featuring film from 1933. And, in a more recent interview, he cited a desire to make a backstage murder mystery, making reference to what I think was the film Ghostbreaker, featuring Bob Hope. But also, the theatre murder theme must put us in mind of Theatre of Blood, which has Vincent Price systematically offing theatre critics in Shakespeare-themed ways. In the same interview, he also mentioned that the visceral nature of the killings reflected an interest in Italian horror films. Here, I am assuming this is a reference to giallo films, which 
with their focus on complex deaths and at the hands of mysterious killers, although Newman doesn't say as much. And he also cites, as a major inspiration, the Alexander Dumas novel, Twenty Years After, that returns to the characters of the Three Musketeers, twenty years after the events of that book. All of this is by way of saying that the novel is a strange mishmash of archetypes and narrative conventions with which the audience will be familiar or feel that they should be familiar. Oddly, Newman went on to say in his 99 interview that this was what was appealing about the Warhammer setting itself, arguing that because Warhammer itself was cobbled together out of recognisable parts, an audience didn't need a lot of explanation to help them get their heads around what was going on in the setting. Just as we are familiar with the conventions of uh, putting on a play in a high-stakes situation narrative, Drakenfels and Shakespeare in Love, to an extent, run on similar tracks, so, Newman argues, Warhammer serves as a good potential site for narrative because it doesn't need an author to explain what an orc is or, or how a dark lord with magical powers might function. These things are understood by the audience and allow the author to move on with the plot. Indeed, at its simplest, one could argue that Newman's basic forma is to bolt recognisable fantasy tropes to recognisable narrative conventions in a way that surprises the audience, most obviously because they centre on characters who aren't particularly interested in fighting anyone. This is what I like about the characterisation of Rudy, Veidt and Menesh in these stories. These old men are not Clint Eastwood characters. They don't get back together for one last job like Unforgiven or are still hard men when it comes to it like Gran Torino. Rudy is a fat old man. Vite, an insensible drunk. The capacity for violence that defines them in the prologue is over and they are left essentially defenceless against the forces arrayed against them. I suppose Rudy does have one last ride as a raconteur and liar, also part of his old skill set, we assume, but none of this will help him. I wonder if there is an element when you put Rudy's story of killing his jailer alongside Erzbet's story of these being people destroyed by the weight of their sins, but I don't think that is something that gets fully borne out. Speaking of sins, we have Laszlo Lowenstein as the factor of Drakenfels, gathering the body parts for his master. Lowenstein has the feel of a sort of Peter Cushing character in his depiction, and his cool iciness, the void Genevieve senses, that slides into his eerily potent depiction of Drakenfels, works really well. I'm not 100% sure what I think of him being a baby murderer, although presumably it does make sense that Drakenfels and his supporters would be pro-baby murderer, and the idea of Team Drakenfels collecting the very worst people in the world to do his bidding makes sense. But the alternative would, I suppose, be for him to be drawn into this world bit by bit, as a result of some smaller peccadillo that slowly corrupts him. And that would make sense, but also take up more pages in a plot that's designed to rattle along. Newman wrote this book in three weeks, he said, and argued that his pace helped him maintain the drive of his plot, which he probably does, 
although he's not above writing a very long list of all the songs they sing at the party to bulk out the pages. The visceral nature of Laszlo and his work is in keeping with those giallo influences, I suppose, and also seemed to chime in with a certain brashness in genre fiction at the time. This book is contemporaneous to the release of the first Sandman comics, and there are flashes of violence in a work like that, the Corinthian and the serial convention, that makes those two works feel very of a type and a particular moment. Indeed, Gaiman and Newman had collaborated on a number of projects I discovered during my research for this podcast, so that resemblance makes sense, I would guess. It also made me laugh that, however monstrous Laszlo is, we sort of end up siding with him against Lily Nissen. Better a murderer with spikes budding on his head than a prima donna. Also, on that topic of mutation, we have Varga Bruegel. Both Newman and Nicola Griffith in The Other focus in on what an interesting concept mutation is by presenting mutants who may also possess physical differences unrelated to mutation, which therefore blur the nature of mutation. This is a world that sees mutation in moral terms. But then, does Bruegel's height count as part of his mutation? Or is he a person with dwarfism and also a mutant? There is something in this that highlights the absurdity of prejudice, as the boundaries of race, Bruegel is often mistaken for an actual dwarf, physical difference and mutation blur. Mira Manga and Arbiter Ian observed in their 40k book club, when discussing the Ravener series, with its depiction of the wheelchair-using Inquisitor Ravener and worlds of humans with mechanical prosthetics, that there might be something to say about that setting and its commentary on disability. And similarly, I think there are ideas around mutants and disability that might also be interesting to explore, although that's with the massive proviso that these stories often imply that madness and bloodlust are a real potential outcome for the mutation process. It's almost more interesting to think about anti-mutant prejudice rather than the mutant experience in this context. Bruegel's story is not over yet, so I'm going to return to him in the next episode for some further development of these thoughts, I think. People seem to remember the depiction of the old Electra Count's magic Warhammer board quite fondly, and it is clear Newman is having some fun at the expense of the concept of wargaming itself here. But what struck me about this is that the depiction of the table reflected something about the way that Warhammer fantasy battle was seen as depicting this crowded world. Think about how much of that circa 1989 depictions of fantasy battle shows this eclectic range of models, often from multiple different armies, all jostling and pushing around one another in a chaotic melee. Take the Warhammer Fantasy Battle 3rd edition cover as a simple example, or the Warhammer Regiment's plastic box set. And the idea of the Warhammer battlefield as being about chaotic swarming is very much in evidence here. The historian, Irina Warner, wrote a book called No Go the Bogeyman that explores our cultural fears around the concept of the ogre and other monsters that will eat us up. And she looks at Warhammer briefly as a modern phenomenon of this, 
drawing parallels between Warhammer armies and the way the insect or animalistic inflected appearance of supernatural beings in Hieronymus Bosch or Shakespeare's depictions of fairies are conducted. Here again, they are often depicted as this shoving and overwhelming horde. It's probably also worth arguing that the 80s had been a very good period for what-if-a-small-thing-murdered-you films, gremlins, critters and the like, and this story in particular put me in mind of that scene in The Young Sherlock Holmes, where Watson is attacked by a cake display. Newman is giving a very specific in-joke here for the core, nay, only demographic that is reading this book. But there is something quite primal in the fear and horror that it depicts with a potent antecedents. Incidentally, Marina Warner, writing in 1998, looks at some models from that period in her book, one of those monopose plastic black orcs, for example, and argues that they ape the vibrant but deadly colour schemes of poisonous insects, which is a much more compelling case for some excessive red-period stylings than I have heard elsewhere. I'm going to close this analysis here, not least because it will be much easier to discuss the plotting of this story without trying to avoid spoilers, so I imagine our final commentary will be pretty extensive. In the meantime please feel free to comment on the show in the posts in the Oldhammer, Rogue Trader or Warhammer Fantasy First Edition Facebook groups, or to leave a review if you are so inclined. Please tell friends if this is the type of thing that might interest them. You could also follow me on Twitter, where I post at at Lewis Kerno about, well, history, this podcast, RPGs, miniatures, and Turnip28. And I'll see you next time with the final acts of Drakenfels.